Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. Welcome to one of the final episodes of 2021 for the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. This is the first of what will likely be two, possibly three in memoriam episodes where we honor and commemorate some of the many sports lives that were lost in the year 2021 from throughout the world of sports and sports history. I'm Dan Newman, and I am joined as always by my brother and co-host, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Dan. This is becoming a, a annual tradition, I suppose, um, to do this episode. And, you know, last year I wasn't quite sure how it was going to work last year. And I think it went well. You know, obviously you could look at it a certain way and say, wow, we're talking about all these guys who've died. Maybe that's morbid or whatever. But, you know, I think some of the names are names that certainly the first couple uh, that we're going to talk about are ones that would come up in other episodes and other topics and things like that. But then there's guys where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, they may not come up in the course of normal business. So um, I think we get a nice cross section and, uh, you know, most of these people this year, fortunately died at an advanced age. Whereas we had a couple last year, specifically Kobe Bryant, where we kind of had to write out of the gate, talk about a person who died towards the end of their athletic career, you know, after their athletic career was over, but still very young in life. And luckily, there's a little less of that this year. Yeah, we'll have one at the very end who just passed away within a few days of our first uh, recording here in Demarius Thomas. But you're right. It has been mostly older. And it's also a shorter list this year. I don't know what that means, but there, there just seem to be more names that seem to be worth mentioning last year. And I would also just note that um, we're sure we're going to miss some. I'm sure there will be somebody there that you thought was interesting or worth noting to you that we missed. So we can only apologize. Please let us know. And maybe we'll figure out a way to mention that person in some future episode in some context or another. But one of the things that I've always enjoyed about this episode or that I enjoyed last year is that it gives us an opportunity to talk about some people who we may not otherwise have mentioned and, you know, may not have even if we did mention them, may not ever have spoken about in depth. We have a number of our fellow hosts and uh, other sort of fellow travelers with the Sports History Network. We're going to talk to George Bazico, who's the president of the Pro Football Researchers Association, the PFRA, which I'm a member of. We'll talk to Darren Hayes, uh, host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast that Andrew and I have uh, guested on several times. Talk to Dana Guster and Jeremy McFarland, both of whom also have shows on the 
Sports History Network podcast, as well as Os Davis. He's going to come on. He's a Laker fan. He came on, talked about Kobe last year. We'll talk about Elgin Baylor this year. So we want to thank all of our co-host, you know, co co-sports history network members and guests for coming on and speaking with us about some guys that have meant a particular lot to them. So uh, I think without further ado, Andrew, why don't we go ahead and get started? Yep. And just for anybody who's not familiar, we go in chronological order of the date of the person's passing. So you'll hear us as we describe each person. The first thing we say is the day of the day in 2021 that they uh, passed passed away. All right. And we're going to kick it off with Floyd Little, who was born in 1942 and passed away on January the 1st of this year. A member of the College and Pro Football Halls of Fame, Little began his career at Syracuse, where he was named an All-American at running back for each of his three seasons with the team. He played nine years with the Denver Broncos and was the first 1,000-yard rusher in Broncos history in 1971 when he led the league with 1,113 yards. And I am honored and pleased to have a very special guest with me to talk about Floyd Little as well as some of the other players that we're going to talk about today is particularly in the pro football realm. And that is the president of the pro football researchers association PFRA, uh, which I am a proud member of. And that is George Bozica. George, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, Dan, glad to be on. So uh, sort of, you know, you are the head of the football history uh, organization in the country. And so Certainly a good one to talk to about some of these guys. Floyd Little is, I think, a guy that maybe a lot of even well-informed football fans maybe don't know a lot about. What can you tell us about Floyd Little sort of right off the bat? You know, Floyd Little was a really good running back with the Broncos. He, he played for the Broncos during a time when they were pretty much a mediocre team in terms of record. Uh, but he was probably, you know, the best player on some of those mediocre teams during the time he played with the Broncos from 67 to 75. And, you know, he he really has an interesting pedigree, too, because he was born on the 4th of July, which I thought was interesting. He was born in New Haven, Connecticut. And as you mentioned, you know, he played at the uh, at Syracuse. He played for Ben Schwartzwalder. Uh, if anybody has seen the movie The Express, they'll probably know who Ben Schwartzwalder is. Ben Schwartzwalder was actually played by Dennis Quaid in the movie, which I thought was interesting. But Little is part of a long line of great running backs that came out of Syracuse, starting with Jim Brown and then Ernie Davis, whose story was told, you know, in the Express, sadly, never got to play it down in the NFL because he he died before he was able to do so. Really a sad story. And then the next one was Jim Nance, who played in the NFL, and then Floyd Little. And actually, interestingly, in the movie, Chadwick Boseman, who sadly passed in 2020, played Floyd Little. Uh, so, you know, I thought it was interesting. Right at the end, they have a small scene where Chadwick Boseman as Floyd Little is really excited to meet or uh, to meet Ernie Davis. And uh, it's sort of interesting. It was one of Chadwick Boseman's first parts and it's just interesting because Chadwick Boseman went on to play Jackie Robinson and a lot yep. of famous people but I I always thought that was a sort of an interesting sort of side note from that movie so he played Floyd Little Floyd was a three-time All-American for Ben Schwartzwalder and just just to take it through one more step 
the last running back in that great line that Schwartzwalder had was Larry Zonka, who's always a who's also a Hall of Famer. So you're talking about three Hall of Fame backs that all came from Syracuse under the same coach, and two of them, Jim Nance was a was a great runner, obviously in the NFL. And, you know, who's to say what Ernie Davis would have been? Everybody felt that he was going to be the next Jim Brown or, you know, he might have been another Hall of Famer. So that's that's sort of the the early history. He was a three time All-American there and uh, then obviously was drafted into the NFL and with the Denver Broncos. So that brings us basically up to where he stood when he started his career within the NFL. Backfield made of Zonka's at Syracuse. It's funny. He comes from a pro tradition that while he was there was not particularly esteemed. But as you said, he comes from this long line of great Syracuse running backs, probably the most players in any sport college or pro that have all had the same number retired by the same team. That number 44 is retired. Zonka was not a 44. He was, I mean, obviously couldn't be because he was a backfield made of, of Floyd Little, but all of those other guys, I think it's something like 11 of those running backs all have that number 44 retired kind of en masse for all of those guys, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all were great for uh, Schwartzwalder. And Schwartzwalder liked to run the ball. I think I saw a stat, and I hope I'm not misquoting, but they said that during uh, a certain time there, they gained like 22,000 yards on the ground, which I thought was just amazing. But, you know, so he comes from this you know, great background, went on with the Broncos, five-time Pro Bowler. He gained 6,323 yards during his career, had 15, 55 total touchdowns. He was also a good receiver out of the backfield. And interestingly, from 1968 to 1973, over a five-year period, he had the most rushing yards and the most yards from scrimmage of anybody in football. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was at the top of the heap during that time frame. He ended up his whole career with over 12,000 you know, total yards. And as you said, he's a member not only of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but also the College Football Hall of Fame. And he was one of the charter members of the Broncos Ring of, uh, of Fame. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's you know, he has a lot of accolades. I, I live in Akron and grew up in Canton and real close to the Hall of Fame within walking distance of the Hall of Fame. So I go down every year for the Hall of Fame festivities. And you know, prior to his death, Floyd Little was somebody that was there almost every year, mm-hmm. uh, which is always of interest to me because when you go every year, you see certain players that were inducted that, and not to say that it means more to them than say the players that don't come back all the time, but you see some Hall of Famers that seem to never come back and visit Canton, but Floyd was always one of those ones that came back every year. And I think it showed just how much that, you know, accolade meant to him is that, you know, he, he, it meant a great deal to him that he made it to the Hall of Fame. And so he showed up every year and, uh, you know, he was always open with the press, always told great stories. And you know, that, that's just, I, I think, the kind of person Floyd Little was. And it's a unique story to a lot of, so much of the Hall of Fame in all sports, but, you know, specifically in this case in the NFL. I mean, we're still seeing it to this day. How many guys are there from, the 60s Packers, Jerry Kramer just got in a few years ago. How many guys are there from the Steel Curtain Steelers, the Chuck Knoll teams? Um, Donnie Shell just got in this year. A little, and I, maybe I'm wrong about this, he might be the only Broncos Hall of Famer prior to the Elway years. Maybe there's one other that doesn't come immediately to mind, but 
when a franchise and I was reading in his obituary and doing prep for this little is people maybe credit the fact that the Broncos even stayed in Denver because when they first came on, they were Simon and George, I'm sure you know this too. They were sort of one of the jokes of the AFL very early on. They had these orange uniforms that were sort of ugly on TV and, you know, the stripes. And you read these stories about how when the NFL wanted to laugh at the AFL, the uniforms of the Denver Broncos were one of the things that they seized on. Look at this Mickey Mouse League with their crazy cartoonish uniforms. So a team like that, a franchise like that really is helped by having a star early on. And so I'm sure that that meant a lot to him, too, to be a franchise player in the early years of a team that otherwise struggled. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. And and you're right. Denver had maybe one of the ugliest all time uniforms in all of pro football. But, you know, it, it's interesting that you say that because that is true, because he his nickname was a franchise. Yep, and he yep. was called the franchise because of the fact that, you know, they felt that in a lot of ways he, he saved the franchise from being moved, you know, from Denver. You know, I think we think of Denver and then we think of the Elway years and the Super Bowl years and then, you know, Peyton Manning, obviously late in his career. But this was a, a franchise that really did. Uh, you know, struggle early on. In fact, I, I remember I was a huge Joe Namath fan in the sixties as were many teenagers like me in that time frame that grew yep. up in the time frame. And I remember seeing a Denver Jets game and this was when the Jets, you know, were at their peak with Joe Namath and they lost to Denver. I think it was a 21 to 19 score. And I remember the announcers made such a big deal about what a huge upset that was <laughs> because that just didn't happen. You know I mean? You know, not to say there were some weeks with 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 Namath that the Jets just didn't show up or, you know, being the gunslinger that he was, sometimes he threw more interceptions and touchdown passes. But that was one of those situations where Denver had a great defense that year. You know, they they beat the Jets. But, yeah, they were uh, – I don't want to say they were a laughing stock because I think that's maybe taking a little bit too far. But, you know, they definitely weren't, you know, that kind of a franchise. You know, the thing I, I read, too, about Floyd Little, too, was and, – and I think it says a lot about the man was – people have nothing but great things to say about him and his character. He was a man of really, you know, high character, believed that you you could succeed in anything if you gave it, you know, a try. You know, he said that, you know, he, he, I've read, you know, in preparation that, you know, he was a bit of an angry kid at one time, you know, and he, he got over that through, you know, coaches and teachers and stuff like that, that, you know, showed him the way. And, you know, he, here he turned out to be, you know, a, a NFL Hall of Famer. So it just, you know, he he showed that and he lived that life. Absolutely. Absolutely. A, a good player, a great player and an even an even better man. Retired seventh all time in rushing in NFL history, uh, obviously has gone down on the list. Didn't play on some very good teams, never made the playoffs, only two winning records, but a star of the early Broncos, as George was saying, a, a good man who did a lot for his franchise, who did a lot for his community and was beloved by his former players, fans, media, you name it. We will hear much more from George Bazika as the episodes go on. George, thank you so much for joining us to talk a little bit about Floyd Little. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Okay, and thanks to George for hopping on to talk about Floyd Little, our very first honoree. For our second honoree, we have another special guest. We have Dana Auguster from the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, another great show here on the Sports History Network. He's going to talk to us about a 
few guys in the NBA realm, and we're going to start off with Paul Westfall, who was born in 1950 and passed away on January 2nd. A member of the Basketball Hall of Fame as a player, Westfall began his career with the Boston Celtics and won a championship with the team in 1974. Traded to the Phoenix Suns in 1975, Westfall played against the Celtics in the 1976 NBA Finals and played a key role in a triple overtime game in Game 5 of that series. Westfall went on to coach several teams in both the NBA and college and is best known for coaching the 1993 Suns team led by Charles Barkley that went to the NBA finals. Uh, Dana, thanks so much for joining us to do this. Hey, man, no problem, man. I'm glad to be on, man. This sounds like it's going to be fun. Yeah, we, we really enjoy it. It's a great way. First of all, it's a great way for us to recap uh, and commemorate a lot of the individuals who maybe we wouldn't get a chance to talk about as much you know we we're going to talk about hank aaron and uh elgin baylor at times on our podcast but we might not get as much of a chance to talk about floyd little or al unser senior or some of these other guys that for one reason or another kind of fall outside the realm of of what we talk about and, and andrew's back with me too so why don't i kind of throw it over to dana first uh, what are your sort of uh, immediate impressions thoughts memories what have you of paul westfall well, Paul Westfall, to me, when I first, I mean, when my generation, of course, you think of him as the coach of the Phoenix Suns in the 90s with those great teams with Barkley and Dan Marley and Kevin Johnson and, and all the like, Mark West and all those guys. Um, but um, doing my research, I, a lot of things I've read about him, I really didn't realize, like he was the national, national high school player of the year in 1968 you know, out of uh, Aviation High School in Redondo Beach, California. Just stuff like that, you know. Um, you had mentioned in the, in the, er, in the, in the uh, intro that he was traded from the Celtics to the Suns in 75, but he was traded for Charlie Scott, who, was, who had a very, very good game in Game 6 to, in the 76 Finals to clinch the uh, championship for the Celtics that year. Um, they were traded for each other, and they both had very, very memorable finals performances in that series. And in that game five of 76, a lot of people consider the greatest NBA finals game of all time. And I did a podcast, a, a, a segment about that podcast, about that, about that game, I should say, right around the NBA finals, because it was the 45th anniversary of that game. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I did like a recap of the game and how crazy it was and one thing about Paul Westfall that a lot of people kind of miss and why he was a player, he was, he was probably uh, an addition, he was basically like a, an additional coach on the floor for, for John McLeod's team in the 70s. And I'm going to give you this little tidbit about him. Doing that game, right at you know, the climactic end of the second overtime when mm -hmm. Havlicek hits the shot to give the Celtics the lead, Westfall calls timeout, which the Suns were out of timeouts. But the rule at the time was that if you call a timeout and you didn't have any, you got a technical foul. And basically, the technical foul was that the Celtics would get a free throw, but the Suns would get the ball back and had the chance to advance the ball to half court. So he basically 
basically the, the, basically the rule didn't fit the crime the punishment didn't fit the crime yeah okay and so they got the chance to advance the ball to half court and of course what happened next was Gar heard hit the turnaround jump shot to send it to a third overtime and in precipitating a, a Brent Musburger heart attack uh, <laughs> and we've got a third overtime in the Boston Garden that's right that's right him and Rick Barry both of them losing their minds on the sideline that, that just shows how smart and how you know, how much he was into the game and how much intelligence and, you know, we everybody talks about basketball IQ, where his basketball IQ was off the charts, even as a player. Funny story, a little bit of an aside from that series, but, and I did, I read about, I wasn't even alive in 1976, so obviously I read about it years later, but apparently, unlike now, and this shows you how different the NBA was in the mid-1970s, the broadcasters were paid on a per-game basis. Mm -hmm. So Musburger and Barry said years later that when it looked like the Suns were going to win the game, they couldn't hide their excitement because it meant the series might go more games and they would get paid to broadcast <laughs> extra games. Different than today, when half the time you get the impression that the announcers want the games to be over because they're not going to get paid anymore, no matter how much they do. Westfall, very interesting. And I one of the places that I consulted, I read, it's now, I think, you know, 12 or 13 years old, but Bill Simmons' famous book of basketball, he ranks Westfall 70, 78th overall in NBA history. And obviously he'd be down a little more now because a lot of these guys, um, you know, there've been guys, you know, the Durants and the Currys and everything that have come on. But he says that as close as Phoenix came to winning that series, it's just funny to think had they won that series, Westfall probably would have gone up historically another level because he'd be one of these guys who was the best player on a championship team. You know, he'd be a Kawhi. He'd be a Rick Barry. He'd be a um, what's another good example of I don't know who was the best the Walton type, you know, one of those kind of guys. So he might be a little higher up had they actually won that series. You're right, especially the fact that, I mean, if you look at his, his career in total as a player, he was, I think he was a two-time Pac-12 or Pac-8 back then, all uh, Pac-8 player of the year, all first-team Pac-8, you know, when he was at USC. He was one of the great shooters of the decade, of the 70s. And if he would have won that series, most definitely he would have been. I mean, he would. If I'm not mistaken, he might have would have been. If they would have won the series, he probably would have been the first player. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. Might have been the first player to win two NBA championships on two different teams. You know, he might have been mm. had as, they as won. a top player. I think you may be right. I mean, Wilt did it, but yeah, no, there hadn't been that many at that point because guys didn't move around. No, like yeah, you're right. Do. Wilt won. You Wilt won. You Wilt won, won in Philly and in LA. But Westfall, if he would have, if those that, that Phoenix Suns team, first of all, that that Suns team really had no business even being in the finals that year, if you really think about it. But they upset, if I'm not mistaken, they beat, was it, they upset Golden State in the Western Finals that year? I'll look it up. I think they upset, because Golden State was the defending NBA champion and they had the best record in the league. And they upset Golden State in the finals. I think they swept them in four games or, or, or something like that. Westfall was a key catalyst of that team. Him and um, Garfield Hurd and Ricky Sobers. You know, that team Dick was Van Arsdale, with the coach. Yeah. 
with John McLeod as the head coach. Um, and you had a, a rookie Alvin Adams, who was rookie of the year that year. He, they were just an outstanding, outstanding team. And they just came out of nowhere and just went through the Western Conference playoffs. I think they beat Seattle the first round. And then they upset the, the Warriors in the second round in the, in the conference final. Phoenix was the third seed in the West when five teams would make it. The fourth yeah. teams were Milwaukee and Detroit, which is kind of funny just because they're both in the Eastern Conference now. Yeah, that, that, that um, is funny. Phoenix uh, beat Seattle in six in the first round. Seattle was the two seed. And then the Golden State series actually went seven games. Okay, yeah. Phoenix beat them and then, uh, you know, obviously played the Celtics in the next round and took them to to a six-game series. And I think you also can't, uh, you know, you can't gloss over the fact that even though he was not the star, it was that Celtic team in 74. It was, a you know, the the Cowans, Havlicek, Jojo White team – he was a key player on that team too. played in every game that, and that was the Celtic team. That was the first Celtic team to win in the post Russell era. It had been five right. years, which for the Celtics in that time frame was an eternity. And that was a team that kind of got the Celtics back up and running beat Kareem and the bucks in the 74 NBA finals. So he was, he did which win the championship. Another great finals, by the way. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it probably one of the first times that, uh, you know, because like you mentioned, Dan, the players moved around so much uh, less compared to now, obviously. It was probably one of the first times where a guy who had just been on a team was facing that team, like a high profile player facing yeah, right. the finals. You know, he plays for the Celtics in 74 and by 76, he's the big player on the Suns and playing his old team in the finals. Not that he was like, like Dan said, the the biggest star on those Celtics teams, but he was a high profile player. And here he is against his old team, you know, pretty quickly after leaving them. So that, that was a pretty unique angle at the time. There was, um, I mean, that's something that you write that you didn't see that too often where a player, uh, he wasn't the main player for the Celtics, but then like you said, could you had Cowens and Georgia white and John Havlicek, you know, those guys on that team. But, at the, but, you know, he was an important piece of that 74 team. And here he goes to Phoenix and being traded for Charlie Scott, who became, who was an integral part of that 76 championship team. Mm-hmm. And they basically was playing each other. You know, I think that Charlie Scott and Paul Westphal essentially played the same position, Yeah. you know, and they were, they basically were going head to head throughout the entire series. You know, unfortunately in games five, Charlie Scott fouls out. You know, doing that game, and he he was kind of like lost for. But game six, he came back and really went went off against Phoenix in Phoenix to win the championship for the Celtics. But that '76 Suns team was 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 incredible, and they, they, they're the perfect example of a team that would get hot all of a sudden and would just could beat anybody. And that was that '76 Suns team led by Westfall. I also, before we move on, it's interesting to note here, which I didn't even realize this, but. Another player, uh, bench player on the 76 Suns was a guy by the name of Pat Riley in his last ever NBA season, which I was not aware of until now. It's interesting because he was a key part of the two Suns teams ever to make the finals, 76 and 93. And then this year in the year that he passes away, they make it again. We should talk and maybe, Andrew, I'll start with you on this, because I remember, you know, you and I have vivid memories of these teams that 93 Suns team, I guess in a way they were kind of a one year wonder because they never made it back. And it was 
I believe that was that Westfall's first year coaching them because that sounds right. He was it, he, it was it was his very first year because he took over for Cotton Fitzsimmons when Simmons when Fitzsimmons got fired, and he was an assistant under under Cotton Fitzsimmons, and you know, and right after he became head coach is when they acquired Charles Barkley. Yeah, so and Charles Barkley in that first year he was league MVP, and the Suns were actually, if I'm not mistaken, because I was what. 93 I was 22 so I kind of re- I re- really remember this team they were a pro- they were a, a slight favorite over the Bulls in the finals that year if you could believe that yeah. you know they were a slight favorite to beat Chicago because the, the Suns had the best record you know and stuff like that and the Bulls had won back to back and they think it, they figured nobody could win three in a row you know <laughs> but as a, but as you well know that we're dealing with Michael Jordan here, but Westfall was, you know, was a great, great coach. It just as well, you know, he could have been, you know, I, I call him Mr. Phoenix Suns because he was part of two of the most incredible, two of the best Phoenix Suns teams. And it was an important part in both of, of, of two of the three championship Western Conference championship teams. Yeah, just to fill in the gap. So he. Westfall's on the Suns from 75 to 80. That's when he plays most of his uh, all-star years. A couple of years with the Sonics, a couple of years with the Knicks. Is back on the Suns before he retires in 84. Has a couple of head coaching jobs at small schools, Southwestern Bible College, Grand Canyon. Then he's with the Suns as an assistant. Takes over just in time for that 93 series, uh, or that 92-93 Suns team with Barkley. And that's really you mentioned the, the being the slight favorite anytime anybody ranks all six of the bulls championship teams that's generally the one they have last you know as the weakest of those six title teams and as a matter of fact you know obviously with jordan leaving the next year but they start turning that roster over entirely in those two years between then and their next title that 93 team is still Horace Grant, who had a lot of good basketball left in him, but the B.J. Armstrongs and Bill Cartwrights and, you know, by three years later, it's a totally different team. So, yeah, that Suns team and you can find it on NBC. They they lose the first two games in Phoenix. Right. And and there's a, a clip from game six where they Bob Costas like throws back to their intro from game two. And he says, like, to put it bluntly, if the Suns lose here tonight and go down 0-2, it's very difficult to see that we'll be back in Phoenix again this season. But they go to Chicago, they win two or three in Chicago, come back for games, in- including a triple overtime That's game, right. another, another triple, triple overtime, overtime game, game in game three. Yep. They That's win right. that game with their backs to the wall. They come back down three, two. It's a pretty electric because they have home court, pretty electric atmosphere. And then John Paxson hits that three that sends the Suns home and the Bulls into a three-peat immortality. But yeah, yeah no, it, it, it is. It, that, that 93 Suns team, and I, I just remember that being just a fun team to watch. Kevin Johnson, who I think sort of historically is maybe a little bit of an underrated point guard. Barkley was finally motivated for the first time in years after kind of languishing in Philly throughout the early 90s. Tom Chambers, his best years were behind him, but he was, you know... He was hitting threes. They had Danny Ainge, which was a little bit of like the championship pedigree, a guy who'd won championships in Boston. Dan Marley, a young Cedric Sabalos, who actually got injured for the playoffs. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Again, you talked about the Suns being favored. In retrospect, I think everybody realized that picking against Jordan in a finals was 
not a good bet. But at the time, at least, you can understand why that Suns team was favored. Yeah, exactly, because you had you had um, Mike. I mean, the Bulls were just coming off of back to back. If I'm not mistaken, they had back to back championships against the Lakers and then against Portland. And then they were yep. back in the finals again. And in the Eastern finals that year, they had like a seven game war with the Knicks. It was actually you know, only six that year. Okay. That was the Charles Smith year. That's that's what I was thinking. It was like that in the in my opinion, the Knicks should have won that series. The Knicks had had the Bulls dead to rights in that one, but they just couldn't finish it. You're talking to two diehard Nick fans here. So, <laughs> yeah, no. And in fact, I was just there's a really good book coming out. I, I assume it's a really good book. I haven't it hasn't come out yet, so I hasn't read it. But call it's called like Blood on the Hardwood or Blood in the Garden. It's about those 90s Knicks teams. And I actually just watched a trailer for it this morning, which a, a trailer for a book is odd. But anyway, um, I, I just watched the, the trailer for the book this morning and it looks you just remember what hell the Knicks kicked out of Chicago. And yeah, maybe they were kind of ripe for the pickings there. And you know, that that Suns team again, if they win there, Westfall is a coach who yeah, not only led a team to a championship, but broke up the chance for the bulls to three Pete in 93. Dana, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Paul Westfall. And we will hear from you again later in the show. All right, man. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right. So next up, uh, Andrew, do you want to read the name of our next commemoree for 2021? Sure. Tommy Lasorda died on January 7th. Lasorda spent most of his life with the Los Angeles Dodgers organization and managed the team for 20 years from 1976 to 1996. Lasorda's Dodgers were the only team to win two championships in the 1980s, bringing home the title in 1981 and 1988. Lasorda was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1997 and came out of retirement in 2000 to lead the U.S. Olympic baseball team to a gold medal. So Lasorda, one of the sort of most prominent members, one of the most prominent managers of my childhood, he was just a guy you just he was always there. He was the manager of the L.A. Dodgers since before I was born, many years before I was born. and remain the manager until 1996 when I was about 14 years old. I feel like most of the clips you see of Lasorda in his playing days are of him doing something emotional, sometimes arguing or getting angry with an umpire or another player or something like that. But a lot of celebrating, you watch the clip of the Kirk Gibson home run against Eckersley in the 88 world series. And you, got Lasorda running up, uh, running up the third baseline with his arms in the air. So a guy who loved baseball, loved the Dodgers and was exuberant in his passion for the sport. Yeah. And I was thinking about this, whether Tommy Lasorda is the most person most associated ever with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So not counting the time they were in Brooklyn I feel like Koufax is probably number one and you could argue in the modern, maybe Clayton Kershaw has surpassed Lasorda at this point, you know, and, and those guys are obviously both players and, and Lasorda was a manager, but 
he is one of the people who is most synonymous with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he's no lower, I don't think, unless I'm missing somebody. I don't think you'd have him any lower than three on the list. I think that's right. Yeah. Just a, a guy who, you know, you talk about 20 years as the manager. That's, in modern terms, that'd be somebody who took over as the manager in 2001 and was still managing a team. Bill Belichick has been the coach of the Patriots for that long. And we remark about how insanely, you know, how insane of a tenure that is. You mentioned the two world championships, got to several more, got to the two in 77 and 78, where the Yankees beat them. He would have, was he a coach on the team that got there in 74? He was a coach with Walter Alston. He was, I think that was one of Alston's last years. And well, Lasorda was the third base coach. If Lasorda took over in 76, it would have had to have been one of his, one of Boston's last years. Yeah. Um, you know, and then all the way up through the, the mid nineties, uh, Mike Piazza was probably his last real all-star caliber player that, that Kofak or that uh, Lasorda managed. The Dodgers were not a huge powerhouse in that era in the nineties, but they were rarely a doormat either. 22nd all-time in wins, two-time National League Manager of the Year in 83, and then again in 88, the year that they won their second World Series. He started off his career, he was a pitcher. He pitched for parts of three seasons for 54 and 55 with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then in 56 with the A's. And then I think almost immediately after retiring from Major League Baseball as a pitcher, he went right back into the Dodgers organization and started as a manager in the minor league organization. He managed with Montreal uh, in the late fifties. And you just think how much Dodger history and by extension, baseball history, Tommy Lasorda saw during his time, you know, a guy who played on the team in 54 and 55, meaning he played with Jackie Robinson and Snyder and Reese and Campanella and Newcomb and Gil Hodges, who just got into the Hall of Fame. And he played with Koufax and Drysdale in their early days. And then later was a coach and a manager with Don Sutton and Garvey and Say and all those guys in the 70s, all the way up, not only through the Kirk Gibson and Earl Hershiser years, but then even into the 90s and in the early years of Mike Piazza. And they always say that the reason that the Dodgers drafted Piazza was because Lasorda was buddies with Mike Piazza's father. And as a favor to his father, he drafted Mike Piazza in something like what was it, like the 60 something round or something I'll like that. Up, but it was it was in that it was at the time where you usually see guys like drafting their daughters and stuff like that. It was that late. And, you know, I think also perhaps a little bit fitting that he passed away with the Dodgers as the reigning world champions, as you know, they had won for the first time since that 88. Uh, season. The other thing I wanted to touch on, and we, we briefly touched on it. Uh, he was drafted. Piazza, by the way, was drafted last player selected and had been in his draft class to play in the major leagues. I'm trying to see his actual uh, Piazza. 62nd round, 1390th pick overall was Piazza. The other thing I wanted to, to talk about, and you mentioned it in terms of his celebration, the Kirk Gibson home run. But you almost have to take a step back and realize it was his decision to pinch hit Kirk Gibson there. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, that can get lost in the shuffle that 
it was not a foregone conclusion that putting a guy who could barely move into the game in that situation was going to work out in as fantastically as it did for him. And as you can see in the, the first swing that Gibson has in that at bat, it looked like Kirk Gibson had no business in there. So again, certainly a little bit of being fortunate, but the guy who made the decision to send him up deserves some credit for what Gibson then did. He never seems to have any kind of really bad years. There's a couple of years in the mid eighties where they're like a 73 win team in 1992. They're 63 and 99, which is good enough for that's his worst record. And that's obviously with 99 losses, he's one loss away from 100. So wins three, four pennants, two world series, no playoff appearances other than that. So no division championships out there in the West in any of those years in the eighties or in the nineties, I think the, um, did the 95 team, um, they got to the NLDS and lost. So I'm looking at the Dodgers. They got, Oh, and he's got a couple other playoff appearances in there. I'm sorry. 83, 85, a couple others. Okay. And then 95, they got to the NLDS. That was the first year of the uh, divisional series. And then 96, which was when he was replaced uh, a little bit more, a little bit less than halfway through the year, that ended up being a playoff team too. But you're right. You know, you don't see too many really horrendous years. 86, 87 were nearly 90 losses. But other than that, you know, pretty darn good all along. And even when he gets let's go, it's because he has a heart attack. It's not because he he doesn't retire and he's not kind of asked to leave. He's got what he thinks is some sort of abdominal pain or something. Turns out it's a heart attack. And then actually does a couple years later, he feels well enough. He manages the American, the U.S. Olympic men's baseball team in 2000 in Sydney and wins a gold medal. And again, sort of a guy who was always a little bit jingoistic and kind of prone to large pronouncements. But he always said that because it was for his country, the 2000 Olympics meant more to him than any of his Dodgers wins or championships. And one more thing we should mention, and it was, he was OK, so it was fine. But one of the most famous moments of all time when in an all star game, he's out there. This was long after he'd retired and he's out coaching third base and gets hit with a bat and kind of topples over where his, his hat falls over his head. And I mean, it's as soon as you realized he was OK, it was objectively hilarious to see that. Yeah, and it was funny. It was actually a guy who's been a guest on this podcast. It was Bobby Valentine who had him out there because of how much Lasorda had meant to him in his career, and he had Lasorda out there coaching third base. Before we move on, I just want to read one little passage here. One of Lasorda's big things was, was working with young players, and he founded something that he called Lasorda University, which was extracurricular practice for young players, you know, drills and that type of thing. And one of the scouts with the Dodgers says, Lasorda was the biggest bullshitter in the world. Even if you were a bad player, he told you that you were a good player and don't let anyone tell you different. He got into your brain. That's what made him so special. He knew how to get the best out of his guys. So Tommy Lasorda, one of the great managers and great characters of modern baseball. And he was the ring announcer for the main event of WrestleMania two from the LA, uh, from the Los Angeles sports arena. I believe it was the night before the 1986 baseball season began between Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy, who kind of looks like Tommy Lasorda. If you think about it, um, looks like Tommy Lasorda, if he got stung by a bee and blew up. 
All right. Next up, we have Don Sutton, who was born in 1945 and passed away on January 18th. Sutton joined the Los Angeles Dodgers pitching staff. And in 1966, along with fellow Hall of Famers Sandy Kovac and Don Drysdale, led the Dodgers to the 1966 World Series. Sutton pitched 15 years for the Dodgers and appeared in three World Series. He retired in 1988 with 324 career wins and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1998. And I am pleased uh, to have another guest joining me to talk about another individual who we lost in 2021. And that is Mr. Jeremy McFarlane of the Football is Family podcast here on the Sports History Network. Jeremy, uh, thanks so much for doing this again. And how are you? I'm great. How are y'all doing good, doing good. Uh, you did this with us last year. We talked about uh, Tom Dempsey and Andrew and I were guests on your show earlier in the year, earlier this year. We were on to talk about the New York Giants. So first of all, I want to thank Jeremy. He's going to be uh, getting a little bit out of his comfort zone because he's a football fan, football podcaster, I should say, as you would imagine from the title of his podcast, Football is Family. And he's going to talk to us uh, not about football. We're going to talk to us about Don Sutton, a Hall of Fame baseball pitcher. Before we do that, Jeremy, do you want to just maybe tell us a little bit about the show that you do for the Sports History Network? Well, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, I I was thinking when uh, when I was talking to Arnie about this a couple or last year, you know, you guys have the history taken care of. I don't have to worry about that part, but I said, like, what can we do to make a, a show that would kind of hit everybody? And I thought, well, what makes you a fan? What makes you a fan? So this is what, uh, this is what the football's family podcast is all about. The 60 episodes that I've done is it's about what made people a fan or what made people write a book about something or what made people like something. So that that's the whole goal of football's family. It's, it's really a fan's perspective about football. Yeah, it really is. And you've had, uh, in addition to a number of us, like I said, Andrew and I came on to talk about the Giants. We've talked about some others. You've had, you know, you probably, I think, more than any other host, I would say, and maybe I'm wrong about this and will correct myself later, but you do a really good job of incorporating people from your own life into the show as well. You've had family members, friends, all that type of thing as well. You do quite a bit of that. That's one thing uh, for Thanksgiving, especially last year, I asked my dad to do it. And he said, well, I'm not a football fan. I said, no, this is the Thanksgiving episode. This year, I was able to finally get my son and my two daughters and my wife on. And we talked about, you know, this year in Waverly, we had the flood that killed 21 people mm -hmm. in August. And then just about a week ago, we had a tornado come close to where my granny and my grandmother live and killed several people up there in that area. So this year has been rough and it's, it's just what family really helps you get through a lot of these things. And, and to me, when you take football and you apply it to family and it becomes who you are, some people will do it with, with college. Uh, I do it with the Titans, with the pros. Uh, some people do it with high school, but it's, it's, it's what makes sports special to people and football specifically, but baseball as well. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's sort of a good way to segue into Don Sutton, because I'm looking here at his obituary from uh, when he passed away earlier this year, his obituary on ESPN and his son, Darren, posted on Twitter a picture of several pictures of himself with 
his father, it says, saddened to share that my dad passed away in his sleep last night. He worked as hard as anyone I've ever known. And he treated those he encountered with great respect. And he took me to work a lot. And there's pictures of Sutton Jr., Darren Sutton, with his son uh, in some of the various uniforms, uh, Angels, Brewers, Dodgers, that he wore through the years. For all these things, I am very grateful. Rest in peace. So kind of to your point, you know, family, a big part of a lot of these men's lives, even though they are known first and foremost as Hall of Fame professional athletes. It's kind of like this. I tried with my son and I, I failed. He's not a football fan, but I would take him to games. My my youngest wants to go to a Titans game, but I said, you're not going to sit through the first quarter. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's when you get a chance to bond with a loved one. You know, this this past year I was able to go, or this year I was able to go to uh, Memphis to the FedEx tour the, the the pro the the pro tour there in in memphis with my uncle we, we hung out all day watching golfers and, you know it's just a chance the older you get the more you realize how important family is and when you talk about sports like this and, and, and bringing up don sutton's son you can see how important it was to him uh i i grew up more of a baseball fan i was a i was a uh, an oakland a's fan and I was looking at some of the film that uh, Don Sutton was playing for them. I didn't realize he played for the A's. And for some reason, I had him always with the Braves, but he never played for the Braves. He was their color commentator. Mm-hmm. Actually made the Hall of Fame for the Braves. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, he was kind of a lifelong part of two different organizations. He was a broadcaster for the Braves for all of those years. And then his his playing career started and ended with the Dodgers. He was on some some other teams in various places, came into the league in 1966 and joined a pitching staff that was already a Hall of Fame pitching staff. It was Drysdale and the last year of Sandy Koufax. And I that, bel- that pitching staff could do it today. Yep. That I mean, it, it, you very, very rarely will find, uh, a, you know, from the 60s that would carry over. I had the chance to, uh, and my mind just went blank. Um, Kenny stayed. I had a chance to talk to him. It was, uh, it was awesome. And I asked, do you think that your team right now, or your team back in the 60s at Alabama could go and play in today's football? And he said, no, they couldn't because of strength training, because of nutrition looking at the stats and the way these guys pitched, they didn't overpower you. Now, Sandy Koufax could. Sandy Koufax could overpower you, but they were controlled. They were Greg Maddox-type control. They would mm-hmm. paint the corners. And the thing about uh, Don Sutton that I saw so many times, his curveball looked like it would start at the top of the stadium and drop below it. And I can't tell you how many times I watch people try to swing and they got air because of that curveball. <laughs> He wasn't an overpowering pitcher, and that's probably why he lasted as long as he did. I agree. He did. He he never missed, again, looking at his obituary here, never missed a start in 700, and I believe it was 724 starts. Let me just. Um, he is the third all-time 
in that category. The first two people probably know a guy named Cy Young and a guy named Nolan Ryan, who was my all time favorite pitcher. Yep. Yep. Only Cy Young and Nolan Ryan made more starts than Sutton never landed on the injured list. So he is not necessarily a guy who's he's not he's not a Koufax. He's not a Bob Gibson. He's not a lefty Grove. He's not a Clemens, but he's a guy who did it for a very, very long time. Four-time All-Star, uh, never won a Cy Young, but had some really good years. Pitched in four World Series, who uh, and law, unfortunately lost all three of them, including the the '66 World Series against Baltimore, where they were swept sort of surprisingly in Koufax's last year by the Baltimore Orioles, and then sadly makes it back to the Dodgers in '88, and uh, only makes he makes 16 starts, and then he retires and does not uh, does not make it to the 88 World Series, which is the famous Kirk Gibson year where they beat the Oakland A's and finally win a World Series. So he's got some bad luck. He leaves the Dodgers in after the right after the 80 season. They go on and win the World Series in 81. And then he comes back in 88 when they're about to win again. So he retires a little bit too soon to win that championship. We talked about a few other guys this year um, already uh, in the immemorial Mudcat Grant, who was another pitcher in Major League Baseball, who kind of was another one of those guys who just missed a number of World Series championships by a year or two. And then uh, Elgin Baylor, who uh, we'll talk about the great NBA player who passed away this year and kind of lost, I think it was eight NBA finals and then retired the, early in the season that the Lakers finally won one. So you do feel for these guys who never win a championship. I was talking with George Bazika, and you'll hear these interviews about some of the guys like Floyd Little, who never and Mike, Mick Tinglehoff, another guy who made it to a bunch of Super Bowls and never won one. So you do feel for these guys, but hey, second most starts, third most starts to uh, Cy Young and. Roger Clemens, it's it's very hard to beat that pitched well into his 40s, pitched decently well, well into his 40s and was, in fact, a member. And Andrew and I just did an episode about 1986 in sports, and he was a starting pitcher on the California Angels team that lost the ALCS to the Red Sox in heartbreaking fashion after being up three to one. So not necessarily a guy who gets considered among the all time greats, but one in a long line of great Dodger pitchers, uh, you know, from Koufax to Drysdale to Sutton to Oral Hershiser to Clayton Kershaw in this day and age. So definitely somebody who is worth remembering 300 game winner wins his 300th game uh, in June 86 with a complete game, complete game, one run and three hits in 86. He credited his worth work ethic to watching his father, who was a sharecropper he said he never saw his father take a day off and he didn't want to either. It's family. Absolutely. You know what gets me? And, and, and you will talk probably about people who should be in the Hall of Fame, people who shouldn't. When I was reading this, I didn't realize it took him. I think it was on his fifth time mm-hmm. to get in the Hall of Fame. And he yeah. was the only one inducted. That and they had said that he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because he played a long time. Now, let me ask you this. <laughs> I, I, I saw people say that. I'm like, Pete Rose, if you find it, there's an interview with him and Colin, Cap- uh, Colin Cowherd that I thought was very disrespectful that Pete Rose did, but that's Pete Rose for you. But talking about how he owned Don Sutton, he might have been the only one to ever 
own Don Sutton. But, you know, people have said that Cal Ripken's numbers are elevated because he played a long time. Nolan Ryan's numbers are elevated for he because he played a long time. Let me ask you, if a guy plays for 20 years and loses more games than he wins, will he play for 20 years? Yeah, they will not keep him out there. He is one of, I want to say, 10 players in Major League history, if I remember this number correctly, who has over 300 wins and over 3,000 strikeouts. Sounds right. That that sounds like a that that's I don't have the number in front of me either, but that's that sounds right. And, and notice he said it, 58 strikeouts, five one hitters, two, 10 two hitters. You cannot, you can't play. Uh, the the NFL is different in, back in the 60s. You'll probably throw a lot more interceptions than, than you would, and they would keep you out there. Today, they wouldn't do that. Pitching, mm-hmm. their ERA is a little different than now, but you look at the win total, and I want to say that there's only about three or four years that Don Sutton had more losses than wins. I'm not seeing a lot Thanks. here. I'm not it, 17 it, and incredible. 18. Yeah. 17 and 18 and 69 couple early in his career, but even late in his career, 15 and 11, 11 and 11, 587. So yeah, no, an impressive resume and uh, a guy who was part of some really good, really good teams and some really good pitching rotations. But look at his ERA for 23 years, 3.26. It's not bad. That's incredible. Not bad at all. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, no, really. Oh, he he was a he was, you know, again, not a not a no brainer Hall of Famer, not even not a first balloter, but a, a deserving Hall of Famer and a, and a very, very, very good major league pitcher for the better part of two decades. So definitely a great I player. I remember watching him on the Atlanta playing a baseball with TBS and TNT. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's where I say that's why I knew he was a brave and he didn't win a World Series with him if he was the color commentator. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Another another great, great team that's worth remembering, those Braves of the 90s. Jeremy McFarlane, thank you so much for doing this. Is there anything exciting or that you want to mention coming up on the Football is Family podcast? Well, I'm thinking uh, this, uh, there won't be one this week, uh, but I'm thinking the week of Christmas, I'm going to do something. I wouldn't say sappy, you know, like you have to have the 80s family matters music at the end <laughs> when they kind of get everything working together. But I'm trying to find something where we can tie in Demarius Thomas, how great of a player he was and his yeah. untimely passing. You guys, in all seriousness, take advantage of the time you have, love your family, and make bonds that last because uh, that's really what matters in life. And we'll talk about Thomas later in the episode, obviously. Jeremy McFarland, thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you. And we really appreciate you being a part of this for the second straight year. So next is a true legend, and that's Hank Aaron, who was born in 1934. Aaron passed away on January 23rd. An all-time legend in Major League Baseball, Aaron played 21 seasons with the Braves in Milwaukee and Atlanta. He was the MVP of the National League in 1957, leading the league in home runs and RBIs and leading the Braves to the World Series title. Aaron is best known for breaking Babe Ruth's all-time home run record and retired with 755 career home runs, a record that stood until broken by Barry Bonds in 2007. Aaron is first all-time in RBIs and total bases, second in home runs, and third in hits. At the time of his retirement, he was the last active major leaguer to have played in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, and and Hank Aaron, again, it, it seems almost 
how do you boil it down, right? Yeah, to say like, oh, Hank Aaron was like, people don't talk about the fact that Hank Aaron was a really good player. It's like, yes, they do. The one thing I've always thought found interesting in Hank Aaron is by like a year he missed. If he had come up a year earlier, he would have played for the Braves in three different cities because his first year with them was their first year in Milwaukee. The only guy to do that was Eddie Matthews. And you're right. Aaron misses it by a year. And, you know, you, you talked about the one MVP he won, and he, he certainly went on a run of finished third a bunch of times. He finished third the year before in 56, the year after in 58, and in 59 as well. And then as late as 1971, when he would have been 37 years old, he finished third in the MVP again. Never had, like, the season with home runs where he went to 50, but he hit 40 or more home runs 13 times, I believe. Here's some stats. Eight, 40 or more home runs eight times, including in 1973 at 39 years old. Go ahead. Hits 314 times, 30 home runs, 30 home runs 15 times, 90 RBI 16 times, and captures three Gold Glove awards in route to 25 All-Star Game selections. And there were a couple of those years in there where there were two All-Star Games. But nonetheless, even if you want to knock a few off, that's still over 20 all-star selections, not really talked about much for a lot of his career because he plays in a small set city in Milwaukee and they're not very good in either Milwaukee or Atlanta for most of the 60s. And everybody had kind of thought that it was going to be Mays that was the one who had a shot at breaking Babe Ruth's record. And then all of a sudden, as the years progress as the sixties turn into the seventies, Aaron becomes the favorite Mays kind of peters off. And so early in the season in April, I think it's April 8th, 1974, he hits a home run off Al Downing to break Babe Ruth's record. And he had had a long career. He survived racist abuse early in his career in the South and the minor leagues, and then survived it again in, in maybe in some different forms as he was going. A lot of people, a lot of people didn't want to see Ruth's records broken by anybody. And Maris got some of that, you know, a decade and a half earlier. Aaron, because of the racial component of it, got even more abuse, but managed to persevere and ended up with 755 home runs. A great, great player. You know, one of the probably 10 to 15 best position players in baseball history. And I think the thing with, with the home run record specifically is he finished the 73 season. And really, before the 73 season, it's not like a lot of people were like, because you talked about with Mays and things, and then it was kind of like, wow, this guy's got 670 home runs. Like, he may do this. And then in 73, he hits 40 home runs. He finishes with 713. How old is he when he hits 40 home runs in 1973? He's 39. So he's going into the 74 season and he just needs one to tie and two to break it. So, you know, that whole off season, it's like, you know, people and he's obviously getting getting letters of people with the, the the racial abuse and all that. But on top of that, it's just, you know, there are people who just don't want to see him do it minus any racial animus because they don't want somebody to break Babe Ruth's record. And he once says, it's not that I want them to forget Babe Ruth. I just want them to remember me. Mm -hmm. So he he breaks it early in 74. That's his last year with the Braves. And then he actually goes back to Milwaukee 
uh, with the Brewers for what the last two years of his career, he actually plays until he's, he's 40 years old in 1976 with the Brewers. And I'd imagine, you know, the answer, you know, that little trivia question thing. It, it doesn't really hold up anymore because Bonds is on that list, too. Mm-hmm. But, so the trivia question is and it, it made more sense back when Ruth Mays and Aaron were one, two and three in the home run list. It was what do the three of them have in common? And it was that all three of them started and ended their careers in different in this back in the original city, but with different teams. Ruth yep. was a Boston Red Sox and then obviously a Yankee and then finished his career with a couple of months with the Boston Braves. Hank Aaron, we just talked about Milwaukee Braves to Atlanta Braves to Milwaukee Brewers and then Willie Mays, New York Giant, San Francisco Giant, and then back with the New York Mets. I believe Hank Aaron, or not Hank Aaron, I believe Barry Bonds will come out of retirement to play in Pittsburgh if there is a second team added to Pittsburgh. That is my, I will guarantee that will happen. If, <laughs> if a second team is added in Pittsburgh or a first, let's be honest at this point, um, I will guarantee that Barry Bonds will come out of retirement to play for that team. Early in his career, I, I don't know whether it's spring training or an all-star game, Ted Williams this is early in Aaron's career, sees Hank Aaron hit. And since Aaron bats off his bat, his Aaron bats off his front foot, Ted Williams doesn't think Aaron will ever be successful. And Ted is obviously very wrong. Aaron is second all time in hits after the age of 35. Only Barry Bonds has more hits after being 35 years of age. The other just crazy stat about Hank Aaron is he would have 3,000 hits even if he had never hit a home run in his career. Like we said, he's third all-time in hits behind Rose and Cobb. He has 3,771 hits. 762 of them, I'm sorry, 755 of those are home runs. So he would still have, what, 3,016 hits if he'd never hit a home run. The guy who is second highest all time in home runs, who many people, and this is a conversation for a different day, many people consider him to still be the home run champion of all time, would probably be a Hall of Famer, even if he never hit a home run. And then the other thing I would just mention is he was the last, you know, Mays is still alive, so he's still there, but he was one of the last links to the Negro leagues that remained today. And I want to read real quick. One of the sort of happy little accidents of baseball history is that since the Braves happen to be playing the Dodgers, in addition to the famous call by Milo Hamilton, which we've all heard, he's sitting on seven fourteen. Vin Scully is there calling the game for the visiting team for the Dodgers. And this is what Scully says. He's after the home run. He says it's it is over. And for the first time in a long time, that poker face of Aaron shows the tremendous relief. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us and particularly for Henry Aaron. And he was a big deal in Atlanta for years and years after that. He was always when the, especially when Ted Turner on the Braves, he was a high ranking official, some of somewhat ceremonially maybe, but he was uh, 
you know, had a position as a director within the Turner organization for a very long time, TBS and uh, that whole conglomerate. So he was uh, an Atlanta sort of icon and still you would have to say is the most important sports person in Atlanta history, right? You'd have to think so. I mean, they've not done a lot of winning, which probably does play a role in that. But I mean, I guess you could say like, well, they are the defending world champions, but um, you'd have to say like, you know, you know, a Greg Maddox or something like that. But I think in terms of stature, it's definitely Hank Aaron. And I'm glad th- he got a ring, too. It was obviously early in his career, and, but the fact you know, they can't ever hang that around his neck like they do with some guys. Well, and I think the thing, too, is with Aaron is that he you don't even think of him in those contexts like. Yeah. And I remember when I first started learning about baseball, like. I thought of Hank Aaron as the older guy who broke the Babe Ruth record. He was he wasn't Mays. He may not have even been Mantle, but in the 50s and 60s, especially in the late 50s, early 60s, he was a really, really great player. And mm-hmm. he does have that ring on a on a that Braves team that, you know, those Braves teams in the 50s were a really good team. They they barely lost the pennant to the Dodgers in 56. And then in 58, they lost the World Series of the Yankees after being down after being up three one. So they could have become very close to being a dynasty in the late 50s, led by Hank Aaron. So, yeah, much more than just the home run record to Hank Aaron. Why don't we move on and talk about sort of an icon of a different sort? And uh, Andrew, do you want to introduce that gentleman for us? John Cheney, born in 1932, died on January 29th. A beloved figure in the Philadelphia area, Cheney coached the Temple Owls for 25 seasons, appearing in 17 NCAA tournaments. Although never making the Final Four, Cheney's Temple teams appeared in the Elite Eight five times. His best team was probably the 1988 team, which entered the tournament ranked number one in the country. This guy was a personality, I think, to say the least. Probably a legend of Philly basketball, right? Yeah, I was very fortunate that my first two years at LaSalle were the last two years Cheney was the coach. So obviously he was getting on in years. I think it was either my freshman year. It must have been my my freshman year, I believe, was the Goon Gate scandal, so to speak, where he basically admitted that he had put guys at the end of his bench into hard foul guys on I think it was St. Joe's because this was when every team was in the Atlantic 10 and he said you know sometimes you have to send the goons in he was like that's what they did in my day but and didn't somebody he they broke somebody's wrist or something like that it wasn't just a he didn't send a guy in to get hurt but he sent a guy in so but that was the result yeah and and there was the um the very famous thing when UMass with John for a long time the Atlantic 10 in the in the mid 90s to early 2000s was built on Temple and it was built on UMass. And that was the John Calipari UMass teams. And after one of those games, John Cheney went into the, while Calipari was doing his post-game press conference, Cheney stormed into the media room and said he was going to kill him and threatened him. I I have a couple of things I'll I'll say, but I I was very glad that I was able to see him the last couple of years. They, They were both, they were in the Atlantic 10 with LaSalle. So the two years, they played them twice each of those years. I was at all four games, either doing it for the media or uh, just watching as a fan. My sophomore year, LaSalle actually beat them and broke like a 15-game big five losing streak. So that was pretty cool. But um, 
my most famous personal memory of him, and then I got some stuff we'll talk about otherwise, was actually it wasn't a LaSalle game. It was for a while they would do a thing called the the Big Five Classic, which they would take all six city teams, the Big Five and Drexel, and play a triple header at the Palestra. And LaSalle had played Drexel at noon, and it was a single admission. LaSalle had played Drexel at noon, and then St. Joe's played Temple at three o'clock or whatever it was. And then the night game was Penn and Villanova. So my friends and I stayed for the first half of the St. Joe's temple game. And we were kind of down by the temple bench. And during one of the first timeouts of the game, a guy came walking over and Cheney just got right in his face and screamed. We are playing man to man. Tell me what you think that means. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't like a packed house, so it was very clear to hear him say that. He was very famous for the matchup zone. That was his defensive strategy. He had the look where he'd have the, the tie and the wrinkled shirt and, you know, very haggard. But um, the other thing he was famous for when I was there was early morning practices. 5 a.m. 5 a.m. Because they always talk about when Fran Dunphy took over the next year and he told the guys all like, all right, well, that spring after Cheney retired and Dumpy's one of his first like days as coach, he was like, all right, you know, we're going to have practice at, you know, four tomorrow or whatever. And they, they all the guys were like AM or PM. And he was like, oh, no, PM. Like, you know, because he obviously didn't do that. That 88 team with that with Aaron McKee, who's the current Temple coach, was one of his, you know, the best players who ever came through that Temple system. And I think also it's important to just talk about John Cheney as, it was Aaron McKee wasn't there in 88, was he? Maybe Aaron McKee was a little later. Yeah, I'm looking at the roster now. He would have been a little later. Yeah. Okay, okay. But Aaron, but Aaron McKee was like one of his best players that ever came through that system mm-hmm. in terms of being there. Maybe that was a little later than 88, but. Yeah, and just before you go to anything else, yeah, never makes a final four. Some really good years. That 88 team especially is 32 and two. Year before that, 32 and four, but they never managed to make it to a, Never managed to make it to a final four, let alone a championship game. So that's probably why he's maybe not such other, a, you know, considered like a legendary tier coach, but in the tournament almost every year for decades. The other thing he did, and it reminds me as I'm looking at Aaron McKee, who went to Simon Gratz in Philadelphia, that 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 high school specifically, which is one of the, the powerhouses in Philly, but also a few other schools were essentially temple feeder schools. He didn't really, he would just go to them. Like he had established such a rapport with those guys that like, Basically, if, if you had a really good player on Simon Gratz and a couple other schools, they were going to Temple. It was, you know, obviously, if they were good enough to go to Duke or something, it was a different story. But for the most part, he got those best players in the city. And, you know, it, in the mid 90s and even late 90s and early 2000s, Villanova was down. Yeah. Temple was the biggest school in the city of Philadelphia or the city of Philadelphia and the surrounding area, if you want to include Villanova. They were the top school in Philadelphia, and they were in the Atlantic 10. They were one of the top programs in the Atlantic 10. But I also just wanted to touch on John Cheney sort of as Philadelphia basketball royalty because he, and I'm going to tell a story about, I'm going to read from a book here in a second about his playing days as a high schooler himself, but he is from the area. He went to a school just outside of Philadelphia, and this always confused me because do you know the school that John Cheney went to college at? College, yeah, it's called Cheney State or something, isn't it? Cheney, with Y's. Yeah, with C-H-E-Y-N-E-Y. Cheney State, or he was actually, he was the coach there. So he didn't, he didn't go there. He coached there after, um, 
before he got to Temple. From 72 to 82, yeah. And before that, he was the coach at Simon Gratz. And this actually has from 63 to seven, 63 to 66, it has the junior high school he coached at. But I'm going to read this. And if anybody's heard the episode where we do the LaSalle basketball thing, where we talk a lot about Tom Gola, this story works both ways. It works for Gola and it also works for John Chaney. So I'm just going to read this. And this would have been when they were both in high school. Gola had won the city player of the year in the Catholic league. And John Chaney had won the city player of the year in the public league. I was going to read the same story. Is this from David Grisbowski's book? It's from the, the Grisbowski book. Yeah. David Grisbowski, who wrote uh, Mr. All Around the Life of Tom Gola, a previous guest earlier this year on the Hello Old Sports podcast. So check it out if you want to hear more about Philly basketball, LaSalle and Tom Gola. All right. Gola's accolades came kept coming as the spring wore on. During the awards season, Gola became friends with Benjamin Franklin High School player John Cheney who would be the head coach at Temple uh, University from 1982 to 2006. After the 1951 season, this was the high school season, the Catholic and public leagues held their season's joint sports banquet at the Warwick Hotel on South 17th Street in Center City, Philadelphia. Ceremony was to highlight and honor the past season's teams and players and to hand out the Mark Ward Awards. Banquet's dress code was black tie, so attendees were expected to wear a suit. For Cheney, clothes were hard to come by. I never had a suit, said Cheney. Cheney ended up wearing one of his stepfather's suits with wide lapels, a big tie hanging over his belt, and padded shoulders. Cheney felt embarrassed at the way he looked. As soon as I got there, I started to hide out places, he says. Cheney walked into the Warwick Hotel and went straight to, the, straight to the men's restroom, where he stood on the toilet seat so no one could see his feet. As the night wore on, other players looked for Cheney. At one point, Gola came into the restroom looking for Cheney as the photographer was going to take photos. Johnny... You in here? Come on out. We're going to take pictures, Cheney recalls Gola saying. So, and then, so the two of them were friends for a long time. But, you know, just going back to 19, we're talking about 1951 there. Yeah. Like, still a guy who's relevant, I mean, to this day, but was the head coach at Temple until 2006. You had told me that story about we are playing man to man. I'd forgotten it, and but it, that that's a great story. I was very glad that I got to see him for two years. That that I got to be there when he was still there. Why don't we move on here and talk about Leon Spinks, who was born in 1953 and passed away on February 5th. A gold medalist as a light heavyweight at the 1976 Olympics, Spinks entered the professional ranks in 1977. In just his eighth heavyweight fight, Spinks defeated Muhammad Ali to win the undisputed heavyweight boxing championship in February 1978. Although Spinks lost the title back to Ali in the rematch, he was the only fighter to defeat Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight title. Spinks and his brother Michael were the first two brothers to each hold a heavyweight boxing championship. So Spinks, just as I talk about it real quick, just not to reduce the guy's life to one fight, but here are the people who beat Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, Larry Holmes, Trevor Burbick at the very end of Ali's career. Yeah. Leon Spinks. So that's with the exception of Burbick, that's rare air to be in. And, and the other thing is, is that Ali, although he was a three time champion, the first time he was stripped of it for not being inducted into the military during the Vietnam War. The second time he retired and gave up the title before he came back and won it back. So only one guy ever beat Muhammad Ali in a, as a, as a challenger for the title. And it was not Frazier, not Foreman, not anybody else. It was Leon Spinks. 
and he was also the last guy to lose to Muhammad Ali because Ali's last two fights after that were losses. Yeah. So when Ali mm-hmm. beat him, Spinks was a very sort of classic boxer story of that era, which is not all that positive in terms of got a lot of money, spent a lot of money. It's possible Ali took him too lightly in the first fight, but Spinks almost certainly let that amount of success after the Ali fight go to his head a little bit. He also fought Larry Holmes in 1981 and lost to Larry Holmes in 81. That fight against uh, Ali, the second one, there's a quote here where he says, all I care about was going to the next party. Who was I going to get high with? My life was cocaine, weed, cars, and women, and I enjoyed it. Hopefully not all at the same time. Ali won by decision. Spinks obviously did the boxer thing where years later you insist you still won the fight. One additional thing I've, I've wanted to point out or see if you knew this, and I didn't know this till I looked at this. By the time of the Ali fights, I think you probably know where I'm going with this. There's some interesting things I, I learned about Spinks when I was reading this. Well, and you know, I, his bodyguard was his bodyguard was Mr. T. <laughs> That was, and that was before Rocky too. That was like how Mr. T became, you know. Well, Mr. T was in Rocky three, but when it wasn't before Rocky two, I meant Rocky three. Yeah, no, I was I was reading they the second fight is held in New Orleans. I think they said there was sixty three thousand people in the Superdome. I'm trying to find the number here. Ali Ali Spinks two was the fight that people wanted to see but, but, but I don't see the attendance um, not long before fight time in New Orleans Leon disappeared not anybody including his bodyguard the not yet famous Mr. T could find him he was finally located in a hotel room drunk he was drunk every night he was here and then he loses this fight in New Orleans Ali's only fight in New Orleans 70,000 Superdome do you know who sings the national anthem at this fight? I do, and I wanted to point this out. <laughs> he doesn't sing it; he plays it. Unless I'm, unless I have, oh no, oh, you know what? Never mind, because I'm going to bring up a national, a weird national anthem. The next boxer we talk about, I don't know who sings the national anthem for this fight. Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier, <laughs> national anthem. <laughs> Joe Frazier. I love Joe Frazier's story, and we've talked a lot about. We may have to do an episode at one point on just the Ali Frazier trilogy or something like that. But um, I could go on about Joe Frazier and, and his life and career and not being respected enough in the city of Philadelphia or nationally or whatever. I have very little faith in Joe Frazier's singing ability. And I don't know why it was Frazier was retired by that point, right? By 78. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Frazier last fight was the thrill in Manila. So, yeah, so he's retired. But anyway, a spectacle because of the fact that Joe Frazier sings a national anthem and Spinks, he sticks around for a very long time. That's his ninth fight to Ali. He fights another 37 fights. He doesn't retire until 1995. December of 1995 is his last fight, and he fights just a bunch of real no-name guys eventually moves down to a cruiserweight. He also can be maybe partially responsible for some of the beginning of the fragmenting of the heavyweight title because he's got like four different titles after he beats Ali. And then he gets stripped of one of them because he won't fight Ken Norton. And 
yeah, the thing with that though is Ali reunified them all. So I don't trace, you know, that it was starting, but like the modern fragmenting of it really didn't, or not Ali, it's Tyson reunified the ball. Tyson. Yeah. That was going to say Ali. I didn't think it was I'm Ali. Sorry, yeah. So you, so I'm getting distracted because I really want to listen to this video of Joe Frazier singing the national anthem. <laughs> and we may actually pause this in a second so I could hear part of it. It's a minute and 40 seconds long, and I'm sure I don't need to listen to all of that. Um, but uh, it's what I'm looking at the preview of it, and I can tell it's not good. Um, <laughs> that was starting, but it's not like he's because Tyson reunified them all. That really kind of started with the Riddick bow, and you can. Listen to our episode on that too. Yeah, listen to our episode that we did on uh on on the heavyweight title. So for, so far we've plugged our Tom Gole episode with David. We've plugged our Val- Bobby Valentine interview. And we've plugged our two parter on the heavyweight title. So check them all out. Yeah, no, this is this is not what we planned, but it's working out well. Okay, so next up we have Marty Schottenheimer, who was born in 1943 and died on February 8th. Schottenheimer is the eighth winningest coach in NFL history and served as head coach for four NFL teams in his career. He is perhaps most noted as head coach of the Cleveland Browns of the 1980s, a tenure which included two heartbreaking losses to John Elway and the Denver Broncos in the AFC championship game. He later had successful stints with the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Diego Chargers. I am joined once again by the incoming president of the Pro Football Researchers Association, George Bozica, who is an Ohio native and a fan of the Cleveland Browns. And when I did this, uh, when I sent out the list to some folks, uh, George has very gracefully agreed to talk about a number of individuals in the pro football world that passed away this year. But Schottenheimer was the one that he volunteered for first. So I'm sure in addition to his historical knowledge, there's some some personal stories there as well of being a Browns fan in the 80s. So, George, thanks so much for joining us again. Sure. Looking forward to it. I, and you're right. Uh, I, I, thinking about Marty always brings a smile to my face. So uh, he's one of my favorites. So what I want to do here, and we've already heard from George about Floyd Little, but I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about the Professional Football Researchers Association, the PFRA. And George uh, is the incoming president, uh, depending on when this airs, he'll either be the president or will be just about to ascend to that lofty post on January of 2022. I am a member. Um, I joined uh, sometime over the last year and attended my first convention this summer in Canton, which was great. And I think that probably we have some we certainly have a number of hosts on the network that are members of PFRA. And we probably have some listeners who are members as well. But, George, uh, before we get into Marty Schottenheimer, do you want to just maybe tell us a little bit about the PFRA and and your role in it and what what folks can do if if it's something that they're interested in? Yeah, um, the PFRA is a nationwide organization, although we also have uh, members uh, in Europe. And so we can say we have members all over the world. Uh, We were founded in 1979 uh, by a group at the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, We've been in existence uh, since then. Membership is uh, is $35 a year for uh, people that live in the United States. Uh, I believe it's $40 if you live in Canada and $50 if you live overseas, and it's money well spent. Uh, That membership gets you uh, our publication, The Coffin Corner, 
six times a year. Um, it has great articles about football history. If you check out our, our website, it's profallresearchers.org. Profootballresearchers.org uh, has all kinds of information. There's great information on the website. Uh, we have a forum. You don't have to be a member to participate in the forum. We have a, a members only section, which if you do become a member has a lot of great you know, research in there about pro football history. As you mentioned, our conventions, we do a convention every other year. This past one was in Canton. It was postponed a year because of COVID, uh, but we were there in Canton uh, this past summer. And we're actually in the process right now of planning for our next convention, which will be in 2023. And uh, uh, right now we're looking at a um, couple of different cities in regard to that and putting together uh, sort of um, proposals and things like that. So uh, it, it's a great organization. I, I encourage anybody that listens to the, uh, the History Network, Sports History Network, you're basically the kind of person that would be very interested in the PFRA. So, uh, you know, it, it's a great organization. And I encourage people to look at our website and join up. It absolutely is. And I just to sort of testify on my own here for a moment. First of all, the publication is great. And we're going to talk about Mick Tinglehoff in a couple of minutes. Those who listen to the podcast know that I have a lot of books, a lot of sports books that I use to research the various episodes and the topics and everything else. And you name it. I realized that I didn't have one on. I didn't have anything on Mick Tinglehoff whatsoever. I knew who he was, but I didn't have any books on Mick Tinglehoff. I'm a New Yorker, not a lot of Vikings books, despite my, you know, 1500 book collection or whatever it is. So I was going through George mentioned the coffin corner and I'm like, I wonder. And they at the last convention, they had stacks of these old back issues of the coffin corner. I'm like, I wonder if there's anything in there. And sure enough, I went sifting through all of the old coffin corners. And here we go. July, August 2015, Mick Tinglehoff right on the cover. So I was able and there, this publication's great. It, it's got a ton of stuff. One of the things and maybe it's partially because of the the centennial of the NFL. But one of the things that I was really impressed with about PFRA is that there's a ton of work that's done on the very early days of professional football. I mean, there's there's plenty of stuff on, you know, Joe Montana or Mick Tinglehoff or, you know, 60s and 70s guys, if you want. But just a ton of stuff on the pre NFL days. Andrew and I did a, a book or did an episode, I should say, about the the founding of the NFL and that sort of basic time period, the 1920s era. And there's a lot of concentration, which I like on kind of early professional football, even pre 1920. And I found some of that stuff. That was a focus of the Canton Convention. And I just found it just so incredibly interesting with all the speakers and everything in an, an area that you might not see normally focused on. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of research that's been done over the years on the Ohio League, which was the you know precursor to the NFL. And even going back before that, you know, research that was done on, you know, Pudge Heffelfinger, the, the so-called mm -hmm. first, you know, pro player and, and things like that. And you're right, we, we sort of zeroed in on a lot of that because the whole idea of our convention this year was to celebrate the 100 years. We did it a year late, but <laughs> you know, we, we went all the way back to Pudge and brought it, you know, forward. And it is, it's a fascinating history. There's just some great stories to be told, you know, with the Canton Bulldogs and the Maslin Tigers and, uh, you know, it just uh, of that era and, you know, just some of the cities in Ohio that had, you know, football teams back then, you know, it, it was uh, it was more of a, 
of a small town game back then. And it just, it's really fascinating to read that early history of the league that we see now with everything is in a big city, obviously, except Green Bay. They're the sort of the survivor of the, that small town era, but it's it just, it's a fascinating history. It, it really is. And, and it has been well-researched through the years, starting with, you know, sort of Bob Carroll, who was sort of, I think the, the, the patron saint of, of the PFRA, uh, just some amazing stuff, uh, you know, that's, that's out there. And, you know, some of these things are being put into publications. And if you, if you're, if you're inclined, and I know I do, and I'm a book collector like you also, you know, if you go on, you know, some of any of the book sources online, you, know, you can sometimes find some of these older publications. And there is one that, that is about the early history of pro football that was put together by the PFR. And it's just, it's fascinating. I really enjoyed the convention. I, I, first of all, it was just so nice to be in a room full of guys after everything that's gone on over the last year and a half, it was so nice to be in a room full of guys in the hall at the hall of fame, just, you know, talking football, meeting people. It seemed to me like the group was, and I don't know how many people were there, you know, probably 80 to 90. Um, it was the group was small enough to be close knit, which I really liked. You had a lot of guys who, you know, we're talking about, oh, yeah. And then, you know, three years ago when we were in Buffalo and before that, when we were in Green Bay. You know, it was obviously that, you know, even though these people may only see each other once every couple of years, the group was, you know, a very close knit group. And just from a personal point of view, uh, from a podcast point of view, I guess is a better way to put it. I was able to meet a number of the individuals that do podcasts on this sports history network because I had joined PFRA before I started doing this podcast thing. I just, you know, and then I started doing the podcast and I'm like, oh, yeah, it looks like a lot of these same guys. Uh, Darren Hayes, who does the Pigskin Dispatch, who Andrew and I have guested with a number of times for his number series. And then uh, Joe Ziemba, who not only is a member of the PFRA and is a host on the network, but also spoke at the convention. He's big on the uh, the early days of Chicago football, you know, especially the Chicago Cardinals. He's written a book called When Football Was Football, which is also the name of his podcast on the Sports History Network. So and I think there may have been one or two others that I that I met from the podcast network. So really just a great way to, to kind of meet some of these guys that I that I do this stuff with all the time. And I'm also, you know, not to belabor this because we have more guys to get to here, but it was cool to have the first one being Canton. I had been in Canton, you know, I'd, I'd been to the Hall of Fame a bunch of times, but it was cool. George gave a great tour of of the there's the what 10 uh, various pieces of art, whether it's painting or sculpture or whatever about sort of what are considered the 10 pivotal moments in pro football history. Some are some easier to understand than others. I'll have to say, I think there's one about uh, one about the televising of professional football, which we were all kind of standing there scratching our heads saying, what exactly is this supposed to supposed to symbolize with the ice ball and the 58 title game and, you know, the integration or reintegration of the league in the forties and all that stuff. So yeah, I really, I can't, I can't recommend membership and participation enough. It really is. It, it's a really cool organization to be a part of yeah and, it, and you're right it is a great way to network and and meet other you know sort of like-minded people and i i meet new people every year and renew friendships every time we have these and it's just a, a great thing to be able to do and find other people that you know have your same interests uh it, it is it, it's a great organization i i can't tout it enough 
we got to see a really cool, we got a really cool tour on the last day of the library uh, of the pro football hall of fame. And also got to look at some of the artifacts. The, the one that was most memorable um, was Tom Brady's draft card, which is something you've all, it, even if you don't think you've seen it, you've seen it. Yeah. It's the picture of Tom Brady drafted one ninety nine. But I also, um, as Andrew and I have referenced here and there, I'm a, a bit of a, um, a, a train enthusiast, not like some people are for any, by any means. But one of the cool things that I thought was they had the menu for a train uh, yes. for a meal from, I think it was like the giants in the thirties, which was even more interesting to me as a giant fan. So anyway, it was just a really cool, really cool convention. George and the rest did a really good job, whether it was speakers, guest speakers and tours. Um, they, they, they went out to the uh, Paul Brown Museum. I missed that. I wasn't out in Ohio yet, but just really good. And I'm, I'm already already excited for um, for a year and a half for now or so when we have our when we have our 2023 convention. So PFRA Pro Football Research Association, highly, highly recommended. All right. So, George, let's talk a little bit about Schottenheimer. And you are a Browns fan. You're a lifelong Ohioan. What do you think? Give me your thoughts on Schottenheimer and sort of how is he remembered in the greater Cleveland metropolitan area as a coach? I, you know, even though, you know, Schottenheimer's career in Cleveland had a lot of disappointments, I think he's pretty beloved here. You know, he, he, his years in Cleveland were the last years that we really, you know, sniffed the playoffs until, you know, last year. Mm-hmm. And so I think he's looked at as, you know, a beloved figure in, in Cleveland. And, and that's how I remember him. Uh, that's why I sort of j- jumped at the chance to talk about him because I always thought he was a man of, you know, high character. You know, I thought he was a good coach during the time he was with the Browns. You know, it just, uh, you know, his, his big issue throughout his career was, is that he was a, a great regular season coach, had great records during the regular season, but it, it always seemed that his team stubbed their toe in, in the playoffs. And that, that I think is sort of part of his legacy, but I like to think of his legacy as being one of the winningest coaches, you know, in NFL history who really, I don't think has maybe necessarily gotten, you know, his due, but as you said, it, it's interesting to me because I, I, I thought in terms of his first year in Cleveland as being 85, because that was his first full year, but actually he took over in 1984 for Sam Articliano. Particularly, had been the coach of the Browns during the cardiac kid years with Brian Sipe as his quarterback. And in 1980, Marty became the defensive coordinator. So we're going to get into here, obviously, a discussion of the drive and the fumble. But Marty was also in Cleveland as defensive coordinator for the famous Red Right 88 game mm-hmm. when the Browns lost to the Raiders 14 to 12 in January of 81 in frigid municipal stadium when Sype was intercepted in the end zone and on the play known as Red Right 88. So Sam Bertigliano continued with the Browns into 1984. He started the year one and seven and was fired after the first eight games. And, and Marty became coach, went four and four the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. And the next year, uh, Bernie Kozar came along and that started a four-year run you know, into the playoffs. We were eight and eight the first year in 85, but we did make it into the playoffs that year. And then 86, 87 were the two, you know, big years. 86, they uh, went all the way to the AFC championship game, met uh, John Elway and the Broncos. And I remember that game vividly. That's obviously the drive game 
I'm remember, I'm reminded of it every time ESPN runs the, the <laughs> NFL's greatest games. I remember the game as I was watching the game with my dad who passed earlier this year and Brian Brennan caught a touchdown pass in the fourth quarter, put the Browns up 20 to 13. And then the Browns kicked off. And of course, Denver took over on the two yard line. And I'm thinking to myself, we're finally going to get to the Super Bowl. And as we all know, you know, Elway proceeded to drive them 98 yards, tying touchdown, and then uh, a field goal in overtime beat the Browns. And then the very next year, obviously, it was Cleveland and Denver again, and that was the fumble game when Ernest Biner fumbled uh, after the Browns fell way behind in that game, made a great comeback in the second half, only to, again, you know, fall short. So he was part of the coaching staff, two as head coach and one as an assistant coach, of probably the three greatest losses of the 80s for the Browns. And then in 88, they made it to the playoffs and lost the wild card game. But, you know, some people blame Art Modell. Some people blame Marty. That was his last year in Cleveland. There was talk that Modell wanted him to reconfigure the staff. Part of that involved Marty's brother. And they mutually agreed to sort of part ways, which I, I think is a really sad day in Cleveland because it sort of started the dark ages for Cleveland. Even though we made it to the playoffs the next year with Bud Carson as our head coach, who had been a great defensive coordinator for the Steelers, that was it. And after that, we really went through these dark ages and, you know, losing the franchise and getting the franchise back and, and everything else. So I think, I think Marty is, to go back to the original question, he is a memory of a better time with the Browns, which we hopefully are getting into again with Baker and Kevin Stefanski. But I, so I think people think of him fondly. I, I actually remember the year after he left in 89, the Browns played the Chiefs because obviously he became the head coach of the Chiefs, as, as was mentioned. And I remember myself, my wife went to the game and a lot of people went to the game because we wanted to see Marty and sort of support Marty, even though the Browns were in the midst of a, of a you know, a, a season when they made it to the AFC championship game game again, you know, we, we wanted to support Marty because I think, you know, people felt that Marty got sort of a raw deal, you know, so you know, all this success and that that's how he ended up. And the funny thing was in 88, they went through four quarterbacks that year and he held that team together. Kozar got hurt. Then they had Mike Pagel. He got hurt. Then they had Don Strzok and he got hurt. And then, you know, they went through four quarterbacks that year, Danielson, Gary Danielson, and they still made the playoffs, you know, but, you know, Art Modell being Art Modell, he's not the most favorite son of Cleveland. You know, it just, no. it is what it was, you know, so at any rate, so yeah, that that's, that's during his Browns years, but the players back then said, you know, he was an emotional leader for them, you know, Kozar and, and, uh, Bob Golick said that he would start talking about things in the locker room and he said he would get tears in his eyes. So he was that kind of guy. One of his famous sayings back then that people still talk about today was he told the team, there's a gleam men, there's a gleam. Let's get the gleam. And the players said they really didn't know what he meant, but you know, he, he would talk that way and they felt that, well, maybe the gleam meant the Super Bowl or whatever, but you know, he was always trying to, encourage his his you know team and he was a very emotional leader and you know really that that was his thing with the exception of one year in washington in 2001 he was a lifelong afc coach and made it to one two three four five six seven eight nine it looks like 13 playoff appearances and i'm just looking at some of his win totals here 12 10 10 11 10 10 11 13 13 12, 14, he finished out his career in 06 
with the San Diego Chargers of, with Ladanian Tomlinson, Philip Rivers at quarterback, mm-hmm. got fired after going 14 yes. and two. Uh, yes. And just a little bit of a personal aside here if you're somebody who enjoys listening to Andrew and I banter back and forth on this show every couple of months. The very first time Andrew and I did any sort of a, a radio broadcast type thing was in the winter of 2007. He was still in college at LaSalle University in Philly, and I was already living in D.C. And I, I took the train up uh, on a Monday night to do his radio show with him. And he had a two hour radio show on the campus radio station. And, you know, we talked about the we talked about the Knicks and the Yankees and we talked about whatever was going on in New York sports, because that's what we do. We're New Yorkers. But the big argument we had that day was that it was right after the Chiefs had five. I'm sorry, right after the Chargers had fired Marty Schottenheimer <laughs> after going 14 and two. Yes. And Andrew and I got in this big argument. He was in favor of the firing and I was sort of not as much. I said, how do you fire this guy after he goes 14 and two and bring in North Turner of all people who was yeah. hardly going to going to set the world on fire. I remember Schottenheimer more so. And maybe this is just my age. I remember him as the coach of some really good Kansas City Chief teams in the 90s, especially the two years, 93 and 94, when Joe Montana was the quarterback and they had Marcus Allen at running back, Derek Thomas and Neil Smith on the defense. And that was the year 93 Montana's first year in San Francisco was the year that they went to the NFC. I'm sorry. I went to the AFC title game, lost to Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Everybody was hoping for a 49ers Chiefs mm-hmm. Super Bowl, which would have been, you know, it would have been the highest rated sporting event probably mm-hmm. in NFL history. Yeah. The only thing that would top it would be if Belichick ends up playing Brady in the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> right, right. But, this year, yeah. but they didn't. And instead, we got Dallas and Buffalo and Buffalo for the fourth time rematch, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So I remember him as the coach of those teams. So even after he left Cleveland, he had a really strong career as a coach. He did. He had a good run wherever he was at. I mean, he had that great run with with them. And as you said, they lost in the AFC championship game. His third time in the AFC championship game, wanted to come back a loser with, as you said, Montana and, uh, and Marcus Allen, they lost 30 to 13. And actually Montana got, got hurt in that game. He was, driving towards the end of the first half for a, a touchdown and got a concussion. And so he was not able to play much of the second half because of that. And who knows what Montana had done because they had had a great run in the playoffs to get there. And Montana has sort of been the star. Uh, so, you know, you, you just never know with Montana's, you know, pedigree and, you know, the ability to come back in games like that. I, I always wonder, you know, what, what would he have done if he had been healthy in the second half? They had a good backup then, Dave Craig, yep. who, you know, was a good backup. But nonetheless, Joe Montana, you know, I mean. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, Marty just had some excruciating losses. You know, but, but he was good because, I mean, I looked at what I thought was really interesting, and I didn't realize until doing the research, is his coaching tree is amazing. I mean, people that coached under him, Bill Cower, Tony Dungy, Mike McCarthy, uh, Bruce Arians, all that won Super Bowls. So, I mean, he has an amazing, you know, coaching tree under him, you know, coaches that coached under him and on his staff, you know, that went on to, uh, you know, great success. 
And this was an interesting footnote to Marty's coaching career. In 2011, he finally won a championship. I was going to mention this. With the United Football League Virginia Destroyers. So he finally got his, you know, (laughs) much, much sought after, you know, championship. But yeah, I I think that even though obviously I remember him finally from the Browns years, you know, he's a member of the Chiefs Hall of Honor 2010. You know, he was inducted into that. And uh, I think I think Marty has a strong case for being in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think he's one of those coaches like Don Coryell that did not win a championship, but nonetheless, because of their body of work, you know, deserves possibly a spot in Canton. Uh, I don't know if it'll happen, but you know, I think it, it's something worth discussing and worth debating as to whether he does deserve a spot, you know, in Canton. Before we move off Schottenheimer, just one more Browns question for you. Is there one year of the two, whether it's 86 with the drive or 87 with the fumble, is there one year that hurts more as a Browns fan? I think it's 86. Okay. I think 86 hurts more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, as I said, we had just taken the lead. And it seemed like it was going to finally, you know, be the year. It sort of reminds me when the Indians were in the 97 World Series and they had the lead going into the ninth inning. And Jose Mesa, who'd been their, their stopper all year, couldn't yep. stop the Marlins. And it, it pains me that we lost to the Marlins. That just, that pains me. I, I wouldn't mind if we lost to the Yankees or we lost to the Red Sox or, you know, obviously – we wouldn't play those teams in a world series, but I, I say the Dodgers, you know, if we lost to the Dodgers or the Braves or something like that, as we had, I can live with that, but losing to the Marlins, that, that one hurts. And yeah, I think it's the first one that hurts the most because it was the first time. And that one hurts a lot. Not to say, I think actually we were a much better team than Denver in 87, but we just played a lousy first half. And then we really were the better team after that. They couldn't stop us unless we stopped ourselves, which is what we did. So, yeah, I think 86 hurts a little bit more. Two real quick trivia points about Marty Schottenheimer before I before we move on here. First of all, he was a backup linebacker on the Buffalo Bills in 1966 and was so was only one game they lost in the AFL championship game to Kansas City. So he's only one game away from playing in the very first Super Bowl against Lombardi's Packers. And then he is probably the only football coach that I know of who is the subject of a rap lyric. Uh, There's an Eminem song uh, where he says, I'm cursing at you players worse than Marty Schottenheimer. And when I first heard that, I couldn't help but laugh because I was like, did he really just name drop Marty Schottenheimer? Usually it's (laughs) NBA players or celebrities maybe, but to have Marty Schottenheimer be quoted in a rap lyric, I thought was was really interesting. So George, thank you so much. Everybody check out the PFRA. It's great. We'll have George on again as the episodes go on, but thanks so much for sharing some memories of Marty Schottenheimer. Sure. Thanks, Dan. All right. So next up we have another boxer. We just talked about Holmes a few minutes ago. Uh, Andrew, do you want to read this one too? Sure. Marvin Hagler. Uh, born in 1954, passed away on March 13th. Hagler reigned as undisputed middleweight champion of the world from 1980 to 1987, successfully defending the title 12 times, all but one by knockout. Hagler defeated Thomas the Hitman Hearns by knockout in three rounds in 1985 in a bout that is considered one of the great fights in boxing history. After losing the title to Sugar Ray Leonard via a controversial split decision, Hagler retired from the ring. I watched in preparation for this. I watched the Hagler Hearns fight last night, actually. Three rounds, right? 
It's three rounds. The first round is considered the greatest round in the history of boxing by most people. I had to watch each round twice because, to be honest, I watched the first round, and at one point they put up the – and I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I'm not saying I'm some – like, at one point they put up the – because this was they, – they didn't have, like, the clock on the thing the whole time. They put one – they put the timer up in a minute and 30. And I, I literally was like, there's absolutely no way I've only watched 90 seconds. Like, it is – it's what – it's what people who don't watch boxing think boxing is. Like, you've seen that where sometimes you'll watch a boxing match, not as much recently, but like a pay-per-view with people who don't know what boxing looks like, but they've seen the Rocky movies, and they're like, this fight's boring. And you're like, no, it's this is what boxing looks like. This fight is what a movie, movie boxing looks like. Each round I had to watch to rescore eat twice no i mean obviously i knew how it ends but it's in the discussion for greatest fights of all time and it lasts two and a half rounds one of the books that i use in preparation here is called it's by a guy by the name i don't know you maybe even have heard of this guy his name is fred ferdy pacheco he was uh ali's trainer he was and there's a very good uh documentary it was on hbo but it's not like an hbo sports documentary with leave Schreiber and all that, but it was on HBO a long time ago, just on the thrill in Manila. And it's actually told more from Joe Frazier's point of view than Muhammad Ali's, but Pacheco was Ali's guy. And he's the guy who at one point in that special, he told Ali basically like after the thrill in Manila, he was like, that's it. You're that has to be it for you. Mm-hmm. And he hung around for a few more fights. And I think at some point, maybe after the Holmes fight, even he was like, I'm not going to watch you kill yourself. Like that, that's it for you. But that's how I know who he is. He he's written this book. It's called it's called the 12 greatest rounds of boxing. And he writes about, you know, what he feels are the 12 greatest rounds of boxing. Most of them are heavyweight, you know, Dempsey Tunney, Lewis Schmeling, Clay Liston, Ali Frazier, lots of Ali in here, obviously. Um, But then there's a couple of lower weight classes. And the final chapter is. And the title of it is War, and it's Hagler versus Hearns, round one, uh, April 15th, 1985. And I think I might be able to just get a little description of Hagler here. If you just while, while you're doing that, I will talk about the clip I saw was like the whole thing with the national anthem in that. And the guy who plays the national anthem in that, he doesn't sing it, but who plays it is Doc Severinsen, the Johnny Carson, right? And leader for the Johnny Carson Tonight Show for all those years. And he plays his trumpet. And I didn't realize Doc Severinsen's still alive. Doc Severinsen's like 97 and he's Jeez. still alive. But, um, you know, just an interesting sort of, I don't know that he does it to justice. Joe Frazier does it, but <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. So here's how Pacheco describes Hagler. He says, in Marvelous Marvin Hagler, boxing fans had a rough, tough spoiler from Brockton, Massachusetts, same place Marciano's from. Hagler's main problem was that no one in his right mind wanted to fight a left-handed, heavy-punching, iron-jawed, determined brawler like himself. Marvis Marvin Hagler had fought and beaten the best. His fights were always exciting as he battled with the self-assurance of a man who felt he couldn't be beaten and who knew he had the knockout power to end matters quickly. And so he just destroys Hearns in this 
three round fight. Destroy him. Hearns gives it to him pretty good, too. Yeah, I guess I was just saying because he wins the fight in three rounds by TKO. But it's not in that first round. It's like back and forth. Like they each have like a minute of domination where it's like, I don't know how much more each of these other guys can take. Like Mm -hmm. for a third round TKO, it's an incredibly not one sided fight. So he wins and he's another one of these guys who when he wins the fight, he's got four titles. And then he actually wins a fifth one in his next fight. So he's got five middleweight titles. He's got the WBA, WBC, IBF, and those the, are the ring. only three legitimate ones. So whatever those other two were, were. I got the ring and the NABF middleweight title all oh, listed. Well, actually, that's interesting because the ring was the one that now Ring Magazine is kind of the arbiter of all of it. Like there's. They'll have a now it's actually a belt. It didn't used to be a belt, but the ring magazine used to like they would have a guy as a champion who didn't have any of those belts because it would be they would say like, well, no, that would the reason he doesn't have any of those belts is nonsense. So he's the lineal champion. And then the NABF is actually that was like the old school title, like before all these different sanctioning bodies, the the title Joe Lewis had, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Yeah. So it actually all right, I, I, I'm wrong. Those are actually all ones that have some claims to them. So Marvin Hagler fights Sugar Ray Leonard in April on April 6th of 1987. And it's it's considered one of the most controversial fights like in terms of the decision ever. Leonard used a strategy that Oscar De La Hoya famously used in a, in a later fight, which is try to steal rounds in the last 30 seconds. So Hagler was Hagler comes out in that fight. He's a southpaw. He comes out in an orthodox stance, so fighting right-handed instead of fighting as a southpaw. The strategy was clear to... Because, you know, they score by round, and you what are you going to remember more? You're going to remember the last 30 seconds of the round. So it was a strategy by Sugar Ray Leonard, and I'm just going to... I'm going to read the judging, and then I'll also read some of the ringside reporters just to show you the wide range of this the one thing that i read was that leonard was landing more punches but Hagler was hurting leonard more which is how you're supposed to score a fight is is who's doing the damage absolutely two judges had the fight close seven rounds to five each way so it's a 12 round fight two guys had the fight close one seven five uh judge lou filippo who is a referee in one of the Rocky movies. I thought uh, I recognized that name. Lou Filippo. Lou Filippo scored the fight 115-113 for Hagler. Judge Dave Moretti scored the fight 115-113 for Leonard. The third judge, Jojo Guerra, had Leonard winning 118-110. to So 10 rounds to two. It says his Guerra's scorecard was widely derided in the media following the bout. He later acknowledged that he should have scored two more rounds for Hagler. So he still would have had Leonard winning. But mm. I'm just going to go through some of the. So you had 115, 113 Hagler, 115, 113 Leonard were two of the three judges. I'm not going to go through all these, but Howard Cosell had it 117, 112 Leonard. The Associated Press had it 117-112 Hagler. And then some of the newspapers, Baltimore Sun, 115-113 Leonard. Boston Globe, 115-113 Hagler. It's a fight that the New York Times, Dave Anderson, had it a 114-114 draw. It's a weird fight in that there is some 
legitimate people in this scoring it multiple rounds different. So it's it's a very controversial fight. You can reasonably score it for Leonard, but it you could also reasonably score it for Hagler, not all that close. And then Hagler is so frustrated that he retires. Well, he wanted to fight Leonard again, and Leonard wouldn't sign for it. He wasn't going to just keep fighting unless he could get a rematch with Leonard and win that. Hagler, I get this from Wikipedia. Hagler requested a rematch, but Leonard chose to retire again, the third of his five high-profile retirements, having said that he would do so beforehand. 14 months after his retire, after the fight, in June of 88, Hagler announced his retirement, declaring that he was tired of waiting for Leonard to give him a rematch. And a month after that, Leonard came out of retirement. And they were very different. Hagler was sort of the, the tough kind of working class guy. And Leonard, I mean, even to this day, Sugar Ray Leonard is much more kind of, I don't know if erudite is the right word for a boxer, but he's kind of, you know. In like the De La Hoya mode of like, obviously a very successful, tough fighter, but all you have to do is look at their faces now and tell the kind of fights they were interested, you know, the strategy they were trying to fight. Yeah. And it worked because they still both look good in this age, but uh, not the traditional pug, as you would say. All right. So we have uh, for our next honoree for our in memoriam, we have somebody a little different. And that is Dick Hoyt, who was born in 1940 and passed away on March 17th. Hoyt is known for competing in the Boston Marathon for 35 years while pushing the wheelchair of his son, Rick who was born a quadriplegic and with cerebral palsy. Together, they participated in over a thousand races, including several triathlons. The two also biked and ran from Boston to Santa Monica in 1992. So we are honoring this particular individual uh, sort of at the suggestion of and with the assistance of my lovely wife, Allison, who joins us here now. Allison, thanks so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me. So I think that kind of maybe before we we get into Dick Hoyt and what he meant in the area, I think it's probably important to note that probably even more so than anywhere else in the country, you know, New York, Chicago, wherever else, the Boston Marathon really sort of has a special meaning to the area. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is held on the third Monday of every April, and it coincides with Patriots Day, a state holiday in Massachusetts, which signifies the first day of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So it's the first day of April vacation for schools. So kids are out, families go to the marathon um, and line the 26 mile stretch from Hopkinton to Boston. And, you know, all of the local news channels cover it with the personal stories of those who are running it every year. And the Red Sox play an 11 o'clock game. They do. Yes. So this Dick Hoyt was a guy who he had a couple of sons and one of them was born with this severe handicap. And the story started with sometime in the late 70s, his son, who I think was able to communicate through was it some sort of a machine, I think, sort of like an eyesight type of thing. He communicated that he wanted to compete in the Boston Marathon and, of course, couldn't do that on his own. So his father chose to do that while, you know, pushing him in his wheelchair. Well, it actually even backing up a little bit from that, when he 
it was you, engineers at Tufts University who were able to create a computer for him to touch his head to. And in the late 70s, it was his first race was a somebody in his school. They were having something had 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 some sort of injury and they were having some sort of benefit run. So he asked his dad if he could somehow participate in that five mile run. And after doing so, so his dad, I believe it was, he's about 36 at the time, was not a runner, pushed his son for the entirety of those five miles. And after the race, his son said something, Rick uh, said something to the effect of, I don't feel as if I'm disabled when I'm running with you, which led them to start training for other races. And they ran their first Boston Marathon together in 1980. In those days, they were unofficial entrants because the notion of pushing somebody in a wheelchair wasn't yet a category that uh, the marathon allowed. So they sort of, they started that tradition as well. As I was looking this up, apparently after that initial 5K run, it said that the father Dick began running every day with a bag of cement in the wheelchair because Rick was at school and studying, so unable to train with him. So that's how he sort of approximated his uh, his the weight that he would be running with with his son was using a bag of cement. Yes. And they even moved on to triathlons. He would, I guess, pull him in a boat, I think, as part yes. of the swim. They did, I believe it was three or four full Ironmans, which are, you know, over a mile swim where he would pull him in a boat. And then they had a tandem bicycle where he was sort of in the front and Dick would be pulling from the back and then they would run in their wheelchair. And they sort of expanded that through the years to other races. And they even one of the things that was interesting to me is that putting aside the kind of inspirational aspect of this, that's a lot of work for a guy, especially as he gets into his 50s and 60s to run while pushing the weight of a human being. And in 92, they ran uh, right around, you know, in our neck of the woods, the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. And he actually finished first in his age group in the 50 to 59 age group, two hours, 40 minutes, 47 seconds. And he finished first in the 50 to 59 age group, despite the fact that he was pushing his son which is just crazy. I've wondered if he's ever run a race without his son, because he probably would be an incredibly fast runner if that were the case. <laughs> so, yeah, just really just sort of an interesting and, and sort of inspiring story and something that I think was really well known, probably in the area. Yeah. And, you know, over the years, the Boston Marathon has also become a huge race for people who have fundraised and things like that. So there were other folks that ran under the name Team Hoyt to I believe raised money for uh, cerebral palsy and other sort of other sort of the things that were afflicting their families and things like that. Yeah, it also it seems like after the 2014 Boston Marathon, which uh, Dick had announced would already be his last, then for the next five years, uh, Rick was pushed by Brian Lyons, a dentist from Massachusetts, until Brian Lyons passed away uh, about two years ago. But yeah, the uh, 2014 was the last year the two of them, but it continued on after that and he was just shy of his 74th birthday when he did that in 2014 which is really pretty remarkable yes (laughs) so an inspiring story something that is again a little different from what we usually talk about here on hello old sports we thought it would be something interesting to note and talk about here for a few minutes so allison thanks so much for joining us for a few minutes here on hello sports thanks allison of course thank you All right, so let's move on to a true legend of the NBA who we lost this year. 
Elgin Baylor was born in 1934 and passed away on March 22nd. Considered one of the greatest forwards in NBA history, Baylor played his entire career for the Lakers franchise. He was the number one pick in the 1958 NBA draft and was both rookie of the year and all-star game MVP in his, in his first NBA season. Baylor led his team to the NBA finals eight times, but retired without ever winning a championship ring. Baylor is one of five Lakers honored with a statue outside the Staples Center. Andrew and I are glad and honored to be joined by colleague at the Sports History Network and resident Laker aficionado Oz Davis. He joined us last year to talk about the untimely death of Kobe Bryant, and he's back this year to talk to us about the late Elgin Baylor. Oz, thank you so much for joining us uh, once again on the Hello Old Sports In Memoriam episode. Happy to be here. Sorry, it's an in memoriam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's sad. And and we were talking before. Baylor's probably one of the guys who we might theoretically have discussed in some detail, you know, just given what a, what an all time great he was. But while these these are sad commemorations, it does give us the opportunity to talk about some individuals that we might not ordinarily talk mm-hmm. about in the normal normal slate of podcasts throughout the year. So you are a Laker fan. Baylor's probably a little bit before your time, but why don't you just kind of give us your general thoughts on Elgin Baylor and what he meant to the league, to the team, everything. Sure. Well, okay. I mean, the, <laughs> if you wanted to describe him in short to a sports fan, uh, you could just call him the Don Matting of the NBA. Yeah. Right. He's but he's playing on the most storied franchise or, you know, the NBA, you have twin most storied franchises, but he's playing on that all time great franchise. Uh, in this case, the Lakers uh, for more games than anyone else who did so, who didn't win a championship. And, you know, of course, the ultimate irony here is that he retires nine games into the 1971-72 season. And that's the year they won the championship after X number of years when they had it. Uh, that's the irony there. You talked about how he was the number one pick overall. Now, he's coming out of Seattle University. Okay. Now, Seattle University is not any great shapes in NCAA basketball right now. But even back then, they weren't either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of these cases where, like Michael Cooper, another Laker uh, who played for my University of New Mexico Lobos and got us got us into the top four in the rankings anyway mm-hmm. at one point in that season. I mean, he, he dragged us through that season just like Baylor is doing for Seattle in, you know, uh, what would it have been, 57-58? I think um, that was his rookie yeah, year. Yeah, 57-58, yeah. right. And then, yeah, he's the number one pick at 58 and then Etc. 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 He's also one of the prototype number one overall picks, too, right? I mean, he's this dominant force, and like you said in the intro, he comes in, leads the league in rebounds. You know, makes the All NBA team. You know, makes the All Star team his first year. So, you know, and then he goes on. His statistics are pretty gaudy. Um, he has three consecutive seasons with uh, 34 or more points, scoring 34 or more points per game. 
And just to put that into perspective, the last three guys to score 35 points per game in a single season in the NBA are Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and James Harden. So for those who have never seen him, this is what kind of level he's on. And he's also putting in 13.5 rebounds per game uh, in his career. 27.4 points per game in his career is the third best ever. And the 13 and a half rebounds per game is the 10th best ever. There's only one guy who's top 10 in both besides him. That's Will Chamberlain. No surprise there. <laughs> uh, but again, these are the kind of players you talk about when you're trying to classify Elgin Baylor, right? You're going to Chamberlain, you're going to Jordan, you're going to Kobe, you're going to you know, James Harden when he's teeing off. Played 846 games for the Lakers. Uh, just more gaudy stats for you. Uh, he's now only eighth all time in games played for the Lakers, but he retired. When he retired, he was number one. Yeah. Uh, just ahead of his teammate, Jerry West. Now uh, he's still, he's still number one Laker rebound. Right. And that's not per game. That's like cumulative. Right. So that's, you know, that's pretty good. He's number two in rebounds per game, actually, all time as a Laker. So, yeah, I mean, just, again, just dominant, dominant, dominant. But here's one thing I wanted to say. I did a little research for this. I, I, did, I performed a little mental exercise for this episode. Okay. So the big thing this year for anybody who's interested in basketball history, of course, was to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the league. They released the top 75 team. You know, they do this every 25 years. Yep. Uh, I, I remember the 50 was a big deal. You guys are old enough to remember, right? We, remember we do. Yep. Yeah. That was a great team. That was a great moment because 49 of those guys were still alive at the time. And they all got together and, you know, it was great. There was all kinds of festivities and stuff for it. That was really cool. So it was nice to see this come out again this year. However, when you make these lists, you always got to think about these era-specific guys. You know, classic example is George Mike. George Mike and dominated in the 50s. They had to make the goaltending rule for him. Okay, that's how dominated he was. That's, that's one of the ways I measure dominance for goats, right? Yep. Is just if they make a rule to destroy your style of play, that means you're, you're dominant. You literally change the game when that happens. Okay, but, you know, put Mike in analogy, he's useless, right? He's certainly not going to play five. He might be a two. These days, right? Yeah. Or or a three. It'll be a wing for sure. Uh, if he learns how to shoot three. He's, he's probably a role play power forward who comes into bang yeah. for 12 minutes a game. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so I I made I tried to think of all the guys on that 75 list who could play across eras. Okay. So either they're like positionless guys, or the way that they played their position could go in any era. Okay, here's what I came up with. It basically reversed chronological order. I've got LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Dirk Nowitzki, Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan, of course, Dominique Wilkins, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Hakeem Olajuwon, Bill Russell, Oscar Robertson, and Elgin Baylor. That's the list. That's Mm -hmm. the list. Um, And Baylor's the first. Yeah, he's okay. So, so I've got thirteen guys, right? And and I think probably my last cut here would 
be, I, I, I want to cut Dirk, but it's like, I, I want to have at least one foreign guy. on the team. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So that's the only thing that's keeping Dirk on there. I'm not entirely sure he could have played in the old old days. Uh, he didn't like to. He didn't like to mix it up underneath too too much. That's a fair point. Yeah, so I don't know if he's ready to play in the rough and tumble seventies. Uh, so so he's he's on the edge now. Now my first cuts were uh, Kawhi Leonard, Russell Westbrook, Doctor J, uh, Kareem. Kareem, uh, he might be able to play nowadays, but I question that. And Giannis. We'll probably be on this team someday, but I'm not ready to put him there yet. So, but again, the point here is that Baylor was ahead of his time for sure. One of the other things I was thinking about with this sub list that I made is that, okay, all of these guys were basically zeitgeist players, right? They're all dominant in their time. But I really think that looking at this, only four of them were really ahead of their time. I got Magic, uh, Russell, Oscar Robertson, and Baylor. And probably only Michael Jordan and Elgin Baylor would be better today mm. of this list. I honestly think so. The rules are more favorable to a guy like Jordan. And a guy like Baylor would be Carmelo Anthony times four or five. You know, I mean, because again, positionless player in today's game. I mean, you know, big enough to mix it up, but quick enough. You know, they talk about this is a great video on YouTube. It's only about a minute long. It's uh, Kobe talking with Jackie McMullen about Baylor. And Kobe's saying, well, the thing is, he had the great first step. Right. That's the main thing. He had that great first move to the hoop. Then you look at the YouTube clips of him, the highlights of him. And yeah, he's constantly burning guys. It's that first step, constantly burning guys. And that's something that has stayed in basketball since the 60s to the present day that first step is like the basketball thing right you got to take it to the hole right you got you got to have that first step so i honestly believe that you know baylor is one of those rare 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 cases of a super duper star who who could play in the 21st century better even better than he was then he he would be the second or third best player in the NBA right now just a couple of things to go back. You mentioned he went to the University of Seattle. He actually took them to a national championship game appearance where they lost, which certainly sticks out like a sore thumb when you look at, you know, teams that were the other teams in that year were Temple, Kentucky and Kansas State. Now, right. Teams who were relevant a lot longer than Seattle has been. And he actually goes to Seattle by way of the College of Idaho, where he spends one year. Right. At the College of Idaho, 1955. And if you're wondering, that school does still exist today. It has a undergraduate enrollment of 964. And uh, he comes there sort of, you know, he was born, what, in 1934, went to two different high schools in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was still heavily segregated at the time, including when it came to basketball. So he did not get the sort of coverage and acclaim that he otherwise would have playing just against other black teams as opposed to playing, you know, integrated teams or even just playing the white teams. So, you know, his options were were limited at the time, certainly even for a high profile African-American player, then 
Idaho to Seattle wasn't your normal path, but, um, you know, a guy who really came up in a much different era. And it's not like it was the deep South we're talking about. We're talking about Washington, D.C., but he was still at the time and place where it was hard for him to get on national radar and his options were limited. And there's there are significant commemorations to Baylor throughout D.C., including at the playground and school that's closest to where I live in D.C. in Brooklyn, uh, which is right near Catholic University. So he is somebody very much remembered in D.C. as you know, maybe the best player ever to come out of Washington, D.C. from a basketball point of view. Two other things that I think we, we should note about him. First of all, he might be the best player never to win an MVP. I guess you could put mm. Mike in, in there, but Mike came in before there was an MVP. So it's not really not really a fair comparison. Baylor basically got to the league when Russell and Wilt and on occasion Oscar were winning all the MVPs throughout the 60s. So probably the best player to never win an MVP. And then the other thing, and maybe I would put this to you, Oz, as a Laker fan, unlike, say, a lot of other franchises where you have top guys, top all time guys who are not championship winners. Baylor is probably the only all time great Laker. Who never won a title. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's Don Manning. He's Don Manning. He it's outrageous that to think that he played this long and he just happened to catch. Yeah, he just <laughs> he just happened to catch uh, the Lakers in that. I believe that's the longest stretch in their history without a title, you know, similar, similar to what the Yankees were going through in the eighties when, when Mattingly was playing for them and Mattingly too, right after he left, that's when they started winning. Yeah. So they no. started winning championships. So it's just a curse thing. Um, it, 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 it is, it should be noted that Jerry West and his teammates did manage to get him a full share of the uh, winnings for the championship as well as Rick. So, so, you know, they did acknowledge, I mean, he played, and this is another wild thing. This is another man of his time kind of thing. He played like, or he was on the roster for the first nine games. I think he appeared in like two and, uh, and then he retired. I mean, like, when was the last time this happened in any sport? Like this almost never happens nowadays, but especially an all-time great like this, right? You got to go out with pomp and circumstance, right? You got to go out with yeah. fanfare. I mean, even even Barkley, who knew his leg was destroyed, like stayed active so he could play one more game in Houston. You know, it's like this never happens anymore. But he just that I can't do it anymore. I'm out. And, <laughs> and this, then that year they were. The story of his retirement in at the beginning of that 71-72 season is, one that was not without controversy. The Lakers had brought in Bill Sharman to be their coach, who was a Celtics legend who Baylor had played against in the finals, uh, you know, early in his career, late in Sharman's. And they were not happy. Baylor West, those guys were not happy that they had, quote unquote, hired the Celtics to come because I think that he, he might have brought. Did he bring Casey Jones maybe over as an assistant? I think he did. So all of a sudden, the, you know, these Celtics are running this team and it kind of becomes clear, at least in. Charman's opinion that a second year forward, a guy by the name of Jim McMillan should be the one who's starting. And they kind of talk Baylor into retiring 
knowing that if they put him on the bench, he's not going to be happy and it could maybe cause a distraction for the team. And he kind of just walks away and yeah, doesn't really yeah. have much of a relationship with the Lakers franchise for, for many, many more years. In fact, he's the GM of the Clippers for a very long time, something like 20 years or something like yeah. that. You know, not very successfully, unfortunately for him. <laughs> and we yeah. should we should talk about that at least because he was after he retired, he spent some time with the Jazz when they were in New Orleans as an assistant coach and then as a head coach for just a little while. Took over as the president of vice president of basketball operations for the Clippers in 1986. He was there 22 seasons. There became running jokes about how he had a seat reserved every year at the draft lottery. Mm. Um, <laughs> You're right. They were during his tenure, they went. 607 and 1153 during his 22 years at the helm of the Clippers. He did win executive of the year in 2006. Uh, that was the year the Clippers were really good, kind of out of nowhere for the first time in a very long time. That was but, like the Baron Davis team, right? Yeah, that sounds right. You know, it does at least because it was such a length. It doesn't at all dampen his playing career, but you mentioned Jerry West, his teammate before Jerry West went on to do great things in a lot of executive capacities with the Lakers, you know, most notably, but, um, you know, Elgin Baylor, unfortunately was not, uh, and it's not entirely his fault. Those are the Donald Sterling Clippers, but, uh, was not a very good front office executive in his later years. I want to read something real quick before we close. This is Bill Simmons and his book of basketball, which I've used quite frequently in this episode. As we talk about some of these NBA guys who passed away this year, he said, uh, Elgin strolled into a league where nobody played above the rim except Russell. Nobody dunked and everyone played the same way. Rebound, run the floor, get a quick shot. Quantity over quality. That's what worked, or so they thought, because Elgin changed everything. He did things that nobody had ever seen. He defied gravity. He would drive from the left side, take off with the basketball, elevate, hang in the air, hang in the air, and then release the ball after everyone else was already back on the ground. You could call him the godfather of hang time. So that is uh, Elgin Baylor. Oz, do you have any final thoughts on Elgin before we wrap it up? Right. That's what everybody always says about him is that he invented hang time. Right. And uh, you mentioned the statue at the top of the show. Uh, they put that out there in 2018, I want to say, which is rather late. But it's got him in the launch post. Yep. Right. <laughs> it's got him. It's got him taken off. Right? Mm -hmm. I've been there. It's awesome. It's yeah. Great. It's great. All right. Well, that's Elgin Baylor, one of the all time greats. Uh, before we go, as we have for some of the others, why don't we give Oz a second here? You've done uh, in the year and a half that we've all sort of been at this. You've done quite a few interesting things for the Sports History Network. You're kind of our jack of all trades. You want to tell us a little bit about some of the podcasts and projects that you've done for the network? Sure, sure. Here's what's going on right now. I've I've also got like three or four projects going on outside the network as well. Uh, one of them is not even about sports. There you go. Uh, so, so um, I came to the network with Truly the Goats. Now, Truly the Goats is kind of on the shelf for the moment, but only for a brief while longer because of my other projects at the Sports History Network. I also do a an occasional podcast called the Sports History Network Showcase. Uh, this. This is something I wish I could devote more time to, but I don't uh, because it's basically about new members to the network. And so it's dependent on when somebody new comes on. There you I'll go. Show about them. And, but 
the thing that I'm working on now that's really killing my time, as, <laughs> as well as Darren Hayes over there at the Big Skin Podcast, is um, working on a audio drama, fiction podcast based in the 1920s. Orville Mulligan sports writer will debut uh, properly at some point on the network, hmm. February, March of next year. Uh, we have a teaser sort of episode out right now. We have some advertisements featuring our lead actors, characters from the show. And we'll be putting out another teaser probably about the same time this podcast comes out. So please check that out and keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon. We'll actually be... If you're willing to, anybody out there, if you're willing to contribute to the production of this episode, uh, of this series, there will be a free full-length episode, really full-length. I mean, it's a monster, this one. It's an epic. Uh, we'll be launching one of our episodes early for those willing to contribute to the cause. Uh, it's a little perk for you all. But I think when you hear the bonus episode, You'll be really, really impressed. So please come over to the Sports History Network, or you can visit OrvilleMulligan.com. Lots of L's in that. Uh, please check it out. We're very excited about this project. Great. Uh, we are too, and I'm sure it'll be great, and the network uh, looks forward to hearing it. We're growing by leaps and bounds, it seems like, every month. We're adding new stuff uh, to the network, and this sounds like a really cool and unique contribution. Well, Oz, it's uh, as it was last year. It's been a pleasure to have you to talk about another Laker great. And uh, thank you for joining the 2021 In Memoriam episode of Hello Old Sports. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to do it. Take care. All right. Why don't we move on and talk about uh, somebody uh, totally different from a different era and a different sport. And let's talk a little bit about Bobby Brown, Dr. Bobby Brown, who was born in 1924 and passed away on March 25th. Brown won four World Series with the Yankees from 1947 to 1951, while also attending medical school during the offseason. After a career in cardiology, Brown was president of the American League for 10 years. One of the last of the Stengel Yankees. And this was a, you know, this was an early Stengel Yankee. This was a Yankee who was there before Stengel, who played in the 47 World Series when Bucky Harris was the manager and played with DiMaggio. And he's the last guy who played with DiMaggio because I looked at this and said he's the last living player from the 51 team. And there's no, there or was the last living player from the 51 team. And there's nobody who's alive from an earlier team, from a championship winning team. Mm -hmm. So he's, I, I don't know if maybe there was a guy who played eight games with the Yankees in 1950, you know, but like he was the last guy alive who had been a legitimate teammate of Joe DiMaggio's. Casey Stengel once said he played like a guy who'd been hitting for 12 years and fielding for one. <laughs> he was part of a platoon at third base uh, early on with a guy by the name of Billy Johnson, uh, he was a lefty batter and Johnson was a right handed batter and then sort of became expendable in the early 1950s with uh, the the onset of Gil McDougald, who was a great Yankee throughout the 50s and could kind of play any position, second, short or third. 
And then after his career and after a career in medicine, he was president of the American League for a number of years in the uh, from 1984 to 1993. In fact, it says here that he presented the World Series trophy to the Toronto Blue Jays in both 1992 and 93 because the office of the commissioner of baseball was technically vacant. I don't know if I still have it, but when I when I was a kid, very young, I went to Yankee Stadium and caught a foul ball and it was back then it would have the signature of the league president on it. And it was Bobby Brown, who was the president of the of the American League at the time. So a full life. He was always somebody who in, you know, over the last 15 or 20 years, you'd hear him interviewed a lot when somebody, whether it was, you know, when somebody died or when they needed a perspective on Mantle or Barra or Ford or one of these guys, he was somebody who you'd hear interviewed a lot. And he was also the crazy thing was a guy who went to medical school. He would miss the, he would miss spring training. Sometimes he would miss the beginnings of seasons. His very last season was in 1954 when he would, I think he started the season and then about two months into the season, he retired because he had to go on to whatever the next phase he was uh, of he, medical school was he was one of the guys who was always at old timers day. Like the one of the him and yeah. Jerry Coleman were the yep. two I remember in like the 2000. I think it said here that he was at old timers day like two years ago. They were always like the two ones who were like the oldest in terms of like years played on the Yankees. Once you got to yeah. the point where, you know, that the, the and it, that weren't like legends because you obviously had like Rizzuto and Whitey and all those guys. And I know they predate them, too. But they were like of the guys who just got announced with the rest of the players because it would always be funny. You'd have one of them and then next it would be like a guy who caught 30 games in 1984 because the Yankees like to invite a bunch of guys. Yeah, John Montefusco or something. Yeah. I remember one time they had a guy. This was like 10 years ago. They had a guy who never played a game at Yankee Stadium. He was on the Yankees for two years, and it was in 74 and 75 when they played at Shea. Like, this is his first appearance in a Yankee uniform at Yankee Stadium. The Bobby Brown quote, and, you know, again, who knows if he actually said this to his wife or his future wife at the time, but it's he's repeated it a bunch to the point where it's become a very famous quote because he was married for about 60 years. His wife, they got married... Uh, right after the 1951 World Series, she died in 2012. So they were married for about 60 years until she passed. And it said during his final old timers day visit in 2019, Brown recalled their dating days and remembered giving his future wife advice on how she should describe him to her parents. Tell your mother that I'm in medical school studying to be a cardiologist, he said. Tell your dad that I play third base for the Yankees. <laughs> they were both true. So. There's another story that come again, maybe it was not true or embellished, but it comes right from his mouth. So it definitely it was not made up. He said it. He was roommates for a time with Yogi Berra and they were. Have you heard this story? I was going to. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're laying in their beds at night and Berra is reading a comic book and Bobby Brown is reading a medical textbook and they're just getting ready to shut off the light and go to bed. And Yogi Berra turns to Bobby Brown and goes, so how did yours turn out? <laughs> I saw that one too. Yes. Howard Schnellenberger born in 1934 died on March 27th. 
Schnellenberger coached football in both the college and professional ranks and is best known as the head coach of the Miami Hurricanes in the early 1980s. In 1983, he coached the national champion Hurricanes to an 11-1 record and a victory over Nebraska in the Orange Bowl. I have to admit I didn't know much about him going into this. First of all, he does not look like a football coach. He's got the pipe, and he's got, uh, yeah, he he's, so the thing, one of the early 30 for 30s, and I honestly don't love this 30 for 30 because I think they kind of paint the later Miami teams as like, a, yeah, they didn't go to class, and they were out doing cocaine all night. That was just the you. Like, I think they're not critical enough about that, but what they do talk about is you learn a lot about Howard Schnellenberger. So, that 10-year run in Miami from 83 to 91, they win three national championships with three different coaches. The last one is Dennis Erickson in 91. 87 won with Jimmy Johnson is what a lot of people associate as like the U. Howard Schnellenberger took over a Miami team that was close to dropping football. Yeah, I was going to say they were they were thinking about getting rid of him. Can you just you to think about that now is just crazy. They were, they were close to dropping football. They had not been ranked since 1966 as high as what he ended up getting them ranked, whether it was the top 15 or whatever. I remember in the 30 for 30, they talk about the very, you know, now the green and orange U logo, thinking that was outdated and, and you know, maybe they were going to drop that. And he came in and wasn't a guy who had any particular ties to there. Before that, his claim to fame and something we shouldn't ignore he started coaching. He went to Kentucky and then played a little in Canada and then became an assistant at Kentucky under Bear Bryant. And then, or maybe not under, not, not never mind. Then in, he went to Alabama in 1961 as the offensive coordinator for Bear Bryant. I got confused because Bear Bryant was at Kentucky too, but that was before. His claim to fame there was he recruited Joe Namath to come to the University of Alabama. Joe Namath from Western Pennsylvania to come down and play at the University of Alabama. Oh, wow. Yep. And I'm sure Bear Bryant had a hand in that, but, you know, he, he's, he gets a lot of credit for it. Went to the Rams for a little while, then went to the Dolphins under Shula. Talk about how Shula and Bryant are like his two mentors and guys who, you know, they coached at the same era, but you think of his worlds apart. And Schnellenberger was the offensive coordinator of the undefeated 72 Dolphins. Of the 72 Dolphins, yeah. Then he actually went and became the Colts head coach for a couple of years. Went back. And just, just to stop there, you have to wonder if part of that was Colts ownership who hated Don Shula saying, you, you jilt us and go to the Dolphins. We're going to steal your offensive coordinator after your undefeated season. So then he goes back to Miami, 75 to 78, to the Dolphins, excuse me, and then gets the job with the Hurricanes and more than anybody is responsible for, and I know they've fallen on hard times the last 10 years or so, but the sort of Hurricanes run that started in the early 80s and really continued in one degree or another till the late 2000s. I mean, when I was in high school in the early, like 2000 to 2004, they were the preeminent college football program. So Schnellenberger, they talk about how he has said that his big recruiting thing was he recruited the state of Miami. He built his goal was to build a fence around South Florida. And if you think about a football hotbed, especially for skill position players and defensive backs and speed, 
South Florida is a hotbed. So his goal was basically any player from that part of the world, I want. I'm going to get them. I want them. It said that Schnellenberger's teams took the best from the three-county area around the city, then aimed at targets among the nation's elite recruits. But if you're filling it out with the best talent in South Florida, you got a good start. Kind of an interesting thing with him that so they win in 83, they win the national championship. I believe, and I, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I believe the Giants tried to get him at one point in the early 80s. That sounds familiar to me Kenny also. Perkins was leaving, or or, or might have even been in 83 when they were Parcells's first year when they were bad, and there was rumors he was going to be fired. I believe the dalliance was with Howard Schnellenberger at the University of Miami. I think that's exactly right. It's a very interesting thing because it's basically objectively a horrendous decision for him in any number of ways. He's gets a huge deal from the USFL to become the part owner, president, and GM of a new team called the, it's going to be the relocated Washington Federals franchise. It's going to be called the Spirit of Miami. In August, this was when the USFL switched from a spring schedule to a fall schedule at the urging of a future president of the United States. So the owner of the guy who was going to become the owner of the, of that Miami team was like, well, we're not competing with the dolphins. So never mind, we're out. So they went to Orlando became the renegades. Schnellenberger had no interest in that. He sat out the next season. Jimmy Johnson takes over from Miami ultimately. And this shouldn't be glossed over either ultimately ends up going to Louisville and turns them around. Their stadium is actually the Louisville current stadium is the Howard Schnellenberger football complex at Cardinal stadium. And wasn't that his hometown too, or his home area? It said they had not had a winning season since 1978, only two winning seasons. The previous 12 years played at Cardinal stadium, which was a minor league baseball stadium. Obviously if you're in that part of the world, basketball is King. They were considering dropping down to one double A, now considered what we call FCS. He turned them into a formidable school, got them into New Year's Bowl games. They beat Alabama in the Fiesta Bowl in 1991. You know, never got them to be like a national championship contender, but for Louisville football as a second act after what he did in Miami, pretty darn impressive. You have to wonder if in 83, Schnellenberger is wanting to leave Miami for some reason, even though they're on their way to a national championship, because if he's first flirting with the giants and then he goes to the USFL, but then doesn't even want to stay in the USFL when the team moves, he must've wanted out of Miami for some reason. Yeah. And I know with the USFL thing, they talked about the money where he was basically said they, they threw money at him where he'd be stupid not to do it. But I think it's, I don't know for specifically with him, but I think it's a couple things. They all end up in power struggles with the university. Yeah. Then to some guys, and Bill Parcells is a great example of this. They just, as soon as they get the team to win, they're looking for another mountain. Yeah. There's there's some of that, but he hadn't even won yet though. Or maybe he had won by that point. Yeah. 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 So, and then the other crazy thing is that he actually goes and coaches one season at Oklahoma in 1995, which is another storied football program, but has a has a 500 season and and decides to walk away from there after one year. So that was another legendary program that he was a part of, if only briefly. 
Yep. So a guy who, again, people, not the people who are, you know, college football experts and familiar with the history of it, but a lot of people tend to think, oh, the University of Miami in the 80s, Jimmy Johnson. And it's like, well, this guy was before that and took it from the rubble to a national championship. And then Jimmy Johnson kept it going. And that's not to say Jimmy Johnson didn't do a phenomenal job there, but our Schnellenberger got that all started. Can I just digress here for a second? This is this is really a digression, but we'll move on to the next guy in a minute. But I'm looking at Schnellenberger's record and I was looking at who he succeeded and preceded as the Oklahoma coach. Did you know that Bob Stoops, who was the almost 20 year coach of Oklahoma, national champion, et cetera, et cetera. Did you know that he's serving as the interim coach for their bowl game? No, he retired five years ago. I know that. And then Lincoln Riley, who's their current coach, it, he just left to go to USC. By the way, you want comedy? Watch his press conference at USC. It it looks like the, it. I say this. It looks like the kind of thing LaSalle would put on. There's this like is three, Riley's. Yeah. At USC, there's like three cheerleaders kind of like that. It's like you're at the University of Southern California. You should, be, <laughs> you should be doing a better job with this. But I did not know he's coaching them in that game. So Bob Stoops is the. Interim head coach. He also, when we're talking about Bob Stoops, for some reason was the was supposed to be the coach and general manager of an XFL team a couple of years ago, and then that got shut down because of COVID. But anyway, yeah, that's that's so crazy. College football is weird. <laughs> some of the things that happen. Yeah. All right. So moving on now, we have a couple of basketball Hall of Famers back to back passed away in this calendar year, and. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about Bob Slick Leonard? Sure. Bob Slick Leonard, born in 1932, passed away on April 13th. A native of Indiana, Leonard coached the Pacers for 12 seasons, winning three championships in the ABA. Leonard was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame as a coach in 2014. And we are pleased to have back with us uh, yet another special guest, Dana Auguster, the host of the Historically Speaking Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We had him on earlier in the show to talk about Paul Westfall, and he's now back to talk about Slick Leonard. Dana, thanks again for joining us. Hey, man, thank you for having me once again. So I have to admit, this wasn't an individual who I was all that familiar with based on the fact that he really kind of spent most of his career, especially his coaching career, a very, you know, I guess he had like a seven year NBA career, um, didn't do much of a specific note there, but then a three time ABA champion. So, Dana, why don't you uh, sort of like we did for Westfall, why don't you kind of give me your initial thoughts and impressions on Slick Leonard? You know, when you talk about basketball in Indiana, what's the phrase? Everywhere else is basketball, but this is Indiana. (laughs) Well, when you think of Indiana basketball, you think of essentially you think of Bob Knight. You know, you may think of other guys like that, but Slick Leonard right there at the top of the list as far as Indiana basketball, because he played at the University of Indiana and led them to their first ever national championship. In fact, that he hit the two uh, clutch free throws at the end of the 53 finals and to win Indiana's first national championship. He was a two-time All-American at Indiana uh, in the the mid-50s and was drafted by the then Baltimore Bullets 
and play, but played most of his career with the Minneapolis Lakers and played one year with the LA Lakers. But everybody remembers him as the coach of the Indiana Pacers during the ABA years. And the Indiana Pacers doing the ABA was basically the best team in that league for a lot of years, for most of the, for most of the ABA's existence, they were the team led by coach Leonard. And you had guys on that team that that's part of NBA royalty that a lot of people don't know of, you know, you think of George McGinnis and Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, Bob Nedelecki, Rick Mount, um, those guys right there, Billy Keller. Those are some really good players that a lot of people really don't know too much about because they were playing in the ABA. And he won three were he won three championships in the ABA in 1970 and then back to back in 72 and 73. And he had some outstanding teams in Indiana with the Pacers during the ABA years. But the one thing that about Coach Leonard that 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 always sticks out and I think is one of the really cool aspects about his coaching life. And if somebody were to put together a script and sell this to a Hollywood executive producer, they'd be laughed out of town because of this. July 3rd, 1977, he and his wife, Nancy, put together a Save the Pacers telethon. This was the first year of the Pacers in the NBA and part of the merger agreement, they had to pay something like $4 million or something like that to join the league. I forgot exactly how much it was. Mm -hmm. I have it written down here somewhere, but anyway, they, they didn't have the money. You know, and he got called away from his, his vacation in Hawaii to come back to Indianapolis. And they were in financial trouble and they were about to lose the Pacers. Somebody was about to buy the Pacers and move them to either Miami or some other place. And so he and his wife, put his wife, Nancy, put together this Jerry Lewis NDA Labor Day style telethon to save, to raise money to keep the Pacers in town. And they did. And... I mean, he was on. He was basically like Jerry Lewis, like doing the NBA telethon back in the day. I'm showing my age here. Um, <laughs> basically, raising money, having people go door to door, help to save the Pacers and stuff, and they did. And the Pacers made the money, made payroll and everything, and the rest is history. The Pacers stayed in Indiana and became a solid, solid NBA franchise, and all of that due to the efforts of Slick Leonard and his wife Nancy. He's got an interesting playing career. He, he joins the Lakers just at the tail end, or I guess just as the Mike and era is ending. So he's there right. for a few years. And then he's an early teammate of Baylor. And I guess West too, probably West, I think was there by the early sixties um, goes to a couple of finals uh, with, with the early Baylor uh, and West Lakers, and then moves on retires and everything. And then, like you said, spends all his time in Indiana it's interesting and kind of fitting because the time that I was a guest on Dana's podcast, we were talking about the Cleveland Browns of the forties and the fifties. And what's interesting about that is the Pacers and the Cleveland Browns, I think might be the only two teams and maybe there's a hockey team that I'm not thinking of. There probably is in sort of modern professional sports that had their best years in a league that's now defunct. Right. I may uh, say you could say also, you know, my chargers, that's like that too, because mm, they won, they point. were a dominant team in the AFL, but when it came to the NFL, it took them like 10 years before they had a winning season, 
you know, and the Pacers were like that too. Uh, it took them a long, long time for them to make the play. I think they were the last of the ABA team to join the NBA to make the postseason. Andrew yeah. and I did back about almost a year ago now, we did a starting five for every NBA team. And the Pacers, I think, was like three or four. Reggie was on there, obviously, but obviously, I'd, have, yeah. I'd have to go back and listen. But every or at least at least three of the other guys were ABA guys. You know, they, they like you said, they were royalty during those few years. And I, I think the thing to point out, and this is not a, a, a given, is that if you look at the ABA, the Pacers and the Kentucky Colonels are the only two teams that were in the same place and the same team identity and name throughout the That's right. Like if you look, I'm just, you know, you could pull some of these up, but the Pittsburgh Pipers became the Minnesota Pipers. They be also, they then became the Pittsburgh Pipers again. Then they were the Pittsburgh Pioneers, the Pittsburgh Condors. And then that was name changes, but you also had the New Orleans Buccaneers became the Memphis pros, became the Memphis Tams, became the Memphis sounds, became the Baltimore hustlers. Like, that's what most of those franchise indexes look like. So had the Pacers not been successful, they probably would have become the Wilmington, Delaware, whatever's right. And we would not still be talking about the Indiana Pacers as an NBA team 50 years down the line. And they, you know, wouldn't have, even if they had stayed in the same place, had they not been as viable, they probably wouldn't have been the, one of the teams that got to go to the NBA. So, right. You know, and that's directly related to those Slick Leonard teams that, you know, and like my brother said, you you look and the, the glory days of the Pacers were and they, you know, they had some good teams in the 90s and got to the finals the one year. But there's no doubt that still the high watermark for that franchise was those years in the ABA. Go ahead, Dana. Now, I was about to say that um, the Pacers, you know, you know, you talked about those, those Pacers teams in the, in the early 70s, you know, in, in the basketball. Roger. I mean, you look at the, the I mean, when I was in junior high and high school, I used to look at, you know, different look at almanacs and stuff like that. I used to be fascinated with that stuff. And I remember hearing about the ABA from my uncles and stuff. And so I'm like, okay, American Basketball Association. So I looked it up and I looked at the champions and I looked at it and I was like, Indiana Pacers, Indiana Pacers, Indiana Pacers. I'm like, then they were actually good, you know, because in Pacers in the late 80s, early 90s wasn't really that good. That was when, you know, Slick Leonard had retired. And I think that Jack Ramsey was coaching them at the time when I was in junior high. Okay. And I was like, were they actually really good? I remember, I remember the only thing I knew about the Pacers when I was coming up was Terrence Stansberry winning the slam dunk contest. Oh, jeez. In wow. fact, it was in 86, I think it was, or 87. I mean, one year that he won the dunk contest. Once That's the Jordan only thing I knew about Terrence Stansberry. The only thing I knew about the Pacers was Terrence Stansberry. But looking at back at, you know, learning about the ABA as I got older and stuff and, and really researching the ABA, I was, like, fascinated by this team. And, and this team was and, – and they was, like, the one of the few teams in the ABA that consistently made a profit. Because of the fans just love the Pacers and they love basketball in Indiana. And, you know, I always say that basketball in Indiana is like football in, Tex- in Texas, mm-hmm. Yep. you know, and people are just crazy. And especially you have a team, a pro team that's really good in Indiana. You can't lose, you know, and they were one of them, one of the few profitable teams in the ABA. 
Yeah, and I think there's something to be there, like you we talked about. There's a lot of good players that were on those teams. George McGinnis, and I don't necessarily have the evidence to defend this argument, but I've always thought of George McGinnis as possibly the second best ABA player just in the ABA. Dr. J being the first, obviously. And that's a pretty good guess, in my yeah. opinion. You know, you got, I mean, and I forgot about Dornell Hillman, who had the probably the biggest afro in the in the aba you know that was what he was known for his his fro and he was a pay he played for the pacers and all of them was coached by slick leonard and they and he had like a little bit of if if you had to make a case slick leonard had the only dynasty in the aba without question he had the only dynasty you know because teams didn't win back to back and he won three in four years i mean i guess you can consider that a dynasty before we move on, I should just mention that he also was sort of a uh, he was an Indiana lifer or a Pacers lifer, kind of like kind of like the Tommy Heinsohn of the Pacers, maybe absent the playing career, because he was then a Pacers broadcaster for another 30 right. or some 30 right. some odd years through all the Reggie years and the, you know, the teams, you know, and even the the later teams of the te- of the 20 teens that were good. So he was a guy who was a part of those teams for for quite a while. Andrew, did you have anything to add? I, not specifically about this, but something Dana touched on, which I think is a universal thing, is like when you're like 12 or 13 or something and you start learning about sports history, but you've had a team that maybe since you've been following sports has always been bad. It's like a culture shock to read that they were ever good. Yeah. Like I remember in like the 90s reading about teams and I'd be like, wait a minute, there, there was a time when the Lions were good in like the 50s or whatever. Yep. Or, you know, so yeah, that's that's kind of a universal thing where it's like, even if it had only been 10 or 12 years, if you're that young, I'm like, I'm looking at this in 1996 and I'm like, wow, that was a, you know, it, it, I just, I kind of need to hear him say that because I've definitely experienced that before as a kid. Absolutely. Or you can go in reverse. I mean, I tell my son all the time that once upon a time, the Patriots were horrible. Well, this is, a, this is a little bit of a digression, but every time that comes up, I always have to mention this. When I was in elementary school, we had the dictionaries, you know, the, the big, like they were green, I think, like the thick dictionaries. You know, you'd have, you know, some of the entries would have little pictures next to them. And under the entry for the word dejected was a picture of a New England Patriots player with his head (laughs) in his hands. They say they literally were under the word dejected in the dictionary. And one last thing, I I always kind of think about that for like the future. I'm like, could there be a world in like 25 years where a team I currently have no opinion on one way or another just drives me insane? Yeah. I'm going to be like, I am so tired of the Rockies every year, every year they're in at least the NLCS every, like it's just kind of a fun thought exercise about like what teams will you hate in the future that you currently have no opinion on? (laughs) It might be my pirates. I don't know. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) All right. I'm hoping God, I'm hoping. (laughs) (laughs) So Dana's actually going to stick right with us here because we have another NBA, another NBA player who sadly passed away this year. Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about our next guy? Sure. Mark Eaton, born in 1957, died after a bicycle accident on May 28th. Eaton played his entire 12-year career as a center for the Utah Jazz. Eaton led the NBA in blocks four times and was named Defensive Player of the Year twice. Known for his durability, Eaton missed only nine games in his first 10 seasons. His number 53 is retired by the Jazz. So, uh, as I mentioned, Dana is still with us. I'll just say real quick, my first memory of Mark Eaton was in 1989-90 time period when I first started to collect basketball cards. And 
Fleer was the big basketball card company at the time. And they had a really cool idea where they each team that had multiple all-stars, they took a picture together of the all-stars in their all-star uniforms. And then they put that out as a card. So like there was a Nick card, Mark Jackson made it that year. So there was a Nick card with Ewing and Mark Jackson. And there was a Pistons card with Thomas, Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars. And the Lakers had one with magic worthy and Kareem. And you get the, you get the picture and the jazz had three all-stars that year It was Stockton Malone and Mark Eaton. And there's this picture of the two, those two guys, Malone and Stockton standing and Mark Eaton sitting in a chair and they're posing for this picture. And so I, for a while, kind of in my head as a little kid, always kind of had, you know, in my mind subconsciously that the jazz were led by these three all-stars, Malone, Stockton and Mark Eaton. Now, obviously, Mark Eaton was not at that level, but I think for a time in the early 90s, he was sort of the third pillar of those jazz teams. I mean, those, I mean, the, the first time I ever really saw the jazz play like seriously it was a playoff game against the lakers i want to say it was like 88 i want to say i was in i think i was in ninth grade and i was a laker fan back then believe it or not and which team i can't stand now but i was a big magic fan and a big kareem fan and stuff like that and they were playing the jazz i'm thinking okay this is gonna be a blowout right they were playing in the old salt palace and I was watching the game, I think it was on TBS. It wasn't TNT yet, it was TBS. Yep. And it was like doing the playoffs. And I remember the Jazz basically beat the brakes off of the Lakers that game. And I was like really ticked off, you know, that they lost to, to this no-name team. And I kept thinking to myself, okay, who's this big number 53 that every time somebody goes into the lane, he throws their stuff. I mean, he doesn't block it. He throws it away. He throws it into the stands. Who's this big? Mark Eaton basically looked like if the brawny paper towel guy became a basketball player. That's <laughs> yeah. what he looked like. He looked like he came right out of the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. He, you know, was seven foot four in excess of 260 pounds. And he looked like a mountain man. He looked like he literally came out of Utah. He, he was from California, but he was he looked like he was was basically typecast to play for the Utah Jazz. Yeah, he kind of fit the team, didn't he? He did. I mean, he looked like he would be he belonged in Utah. And but the size and the beard and you know, he just looked like he just came right out of the mountains. And but he was an outstanding player. One story that I remember hearing about uh Eaton was that he was at UCLA, and he was very unhappy with Coach Larry Farmer. And he was upset because he wasn't getting a lot of playing time. So he was at a playing playing basketball in the park with some friends, and out comes Wilt Chamberlain to watch him play. Wilt wow. Chamberlain knew who he was. And so Wilt came over to him after they were finished playing. He said, look, I love the way you play. I'm a big fan of yours. I watch your UCLA all the time. I'm a big fan of yours. But if I have to give you some advice, the advice is don't try to score. Just protect the paint, protect the basket, rebound, and pass to smaller, quicker teammates, and you'll go far in this league. And he said that that was the greatest advice anyone had ever given him. And that was his game. He didn't look to score, but he was 
multiple defensive player of the year in the NBA. You know, he basically was the control tower for that team when it was on offense. And on defense, he was just an enforcer inside. I mean, and plus his stature, seven foot four, close to over 260 pounds. Who is going to, in their right mind, going to try to drive the lane against him? Mm-hmm. You know, he was an intimidating, he looked intimidating. He was an intimidating presence on the floor. But off the floor, you hear so many stories of how nice of a guy he was. You know, I mean, I hear this story. I heard this this when when he passed away, and it took me by surprise. I thought the guy was in, indestructible. When he passed away, Shaq said that he was the first person in his basketball life that made him feel small. <laughs> That's how big he is. Yeah, you know, he made Shaq feel small. And he was, I mean, seven foot four. I mean, I mean, but he was an outstanding, outstanding player. But at the same time, he was an outstanding, he was an awesome gentleman off the floor too. He took kind of an interesting path in his career. He didn't really play basketball in high school with any distinction. He didn't even start his senior year right out of college. He went and went to the Arizona automotive Institute. So not to yeah. basketball, but to become like a service technician. That's what his dad did. His dad was, a, um, his dad was a diesel mechanic, and he wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps. Yep. So then, he and his dad was like six <laughs> ten. Yeah, his mom was six foot. You know, so obviously height was in his family. He was uh, recruited to go to Cypress College to play basketball. It says here by a chemistry professor. You know, typical. And then uh, <laughs> it said after his freshman year at Cypress, since he'd been out of college long enough, he was eligible to be drafted, and he actually got drafted by the Suns in the 1979 NBA draft, but he stayed in school went and eventually ended up at UCLA and, and all that, but it's just certainly a very weird path to a guy who, you know, not even a junior college or anything, went to a trade school <laughs> with no interest in playing basketball or at least no realistic path to playing basketball and somehow ends up at UCLA and playing in the NBA for 10 years or 11 years. So some interesting stats here that I'm finding in his obituary, some interesting stats and a, uh, a, a very interesting fact as well. Career blocks average of 3.51 per game, highest in NBA history, third most uh, season spent with the jazz behind, you know, the two who you would obviously expect it to be. And he once appeared in 338 consecutive games. So unlike a lot of these kind of tall lumbering types who can't stay on the court, he had a durability 338. That's what that's just over four seasons, if I'm doing my math right. And he was just maybe a few years too old to make it to those jazz teams in the late 90s. He retired old. I mean, he retired at 37. It's not like he retired, you know, prematurely. So, you know, had he been, you know, born three or four years earlier, maybe or three or four years later, I should say, maybe he would have had a chance to be on some of those teams because, and Andrew was a fan of those 97, 98 jazz teams. Center was kind of a weak yeah, point for them. Yeah, tag, you know, was, was, the, was the starting center of that team. You know, and they, I mean, but he, he wasn't Mark Eaton. He, no. He was not Mark Eaton at all. The, he was like the, the very first, I mean, Carl Malone, I followed him because he's from Louisiana like I am. Mm-hmm. You know, went to Louisiana Tech. John Stockton, I just loved the way he played. And then there's Mark Eaton, you know, who's just – 
again, you know, and, and you know, you also had Thurl Bailey on that team. You had Jeff Malone, I want to say, at the two guard. Yep, he was there. Yep. Yeah, that was like a really, really good team. That the the, the 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 early Jazz teams coached by Frank Layden, who was fond of saying, "You can't teach height." Yep. You know, and that was the reason why he loved Mark Eaton because you cannot teach height. I mean, he was just that that enforcer inside on defense and basically a control tower for that offense, running that pick and roll. He was an essential part of that pick and roll offense. Even back then, even they were running it with Frank Layden, and then Jerry Sloan picked it up and just made it even better. But um, those Jazz teams with that anchor inside with Mark Eaton was just just impressive and that team in the early 90s you know that was the beginning of that string of playoff jazz playoff teams that went from the early from the late 80s all the way to the early 2000s you know and you forget how dominant that team was and they were in the playoff you know just like andrew said earlier you'd be like one of those teams that you just get sick of seeing and the jazz was one of those teams you just got sick of seeing in the playoffs every year you know, I, I wasn't because I love the Jazz because they were <laughs> once upon a time they used to be in New Orleans and I'm from Louisiana and I remember when they left and mm-hmm. I just kind of followed them when they went to Utah. But still, it was just so, you know, watching Mark Eaton, you know, he when, it, it, when you have someone that big, you expect him to be somewhat of a stiff. And he wasn't. I mean, for someone that size, he was actually pretty athletic. And you touched on the fact that he was durable. You know, you got guys that big. I mean, you think of guys like Bill Walton, who you don't know what his career would have been like had he stayed healthy. Yep. Or guys like Greg Oden, who was guys that were that big and just get, you know, just get limited by a myriad of just little tiny minor knickknack injuries. Eaton, on the other hand, for some way, he was just, he just stayed healthy. He yep. just avoided those 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 nagging injuries and that's why i said it took me as a, such of a surprise when he passed away because i felt the man was indestructible but off the court again was one of the nicest people just a gentleman off the court but in but on the court he was he was a man you know and you if you can go went up against mark eaton in the center you had to be a man you had to bring your a game and he did every single night yeah that- he was uh, his first year with the Jazz was the last year of their like moribund period, and then the last ten years he was there. They made the playoffs every year. They only got out of the second round once in '92. They got to the Western Conference Finals and lost to Portland. That was the uh, second of the three Bulls first three of the Bulls first three Pete. They were a perennial playoff team. They were you know not usually like a seven or an eight seed. Usually kind of middle of the pack, although. Obviously, the best years of the Jazz came after Eaton was gone in the the latter part of the 90s. But, um, you know, he was a a key contributor on a perennial playoff team for a decade. So I want to do two quick things here before we let Dana go. First of all, I would just note that and this is always funny when you just find these random things about these guys. And this is from his ESPN obituary. Eaton, shortly before the accident um, that unfortunately took his life, he had just been in Chicago to be part of the celebration for his friend Joe West, who right. broke baseball's umpiring record, uh, working his 55,376th regular season game. So it's always interesting when these guys sort of these friendships sort of cross over sports and I guess maybe not generations because they're probably about the same age, but very not not the guy's name I would have expected to read in the Mark Eaton obituary was Joe West. So 
real quick, um, Dana, before we let you, you go, thank you again so much for doing this. A lot of fun. I uh, really appreciate it, as always. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast and what you guys are up to these days? I'm about to wrap up the year, wrap up my first my first year doing this. It's been so much fun, and I've had a lot of positive feedback, not only from the general public, but you guys here at the um, Sports History Network. I've had a lot of positive feedback from you guys, and I really appreciate it. The upcoming episode that I have coming up, I'm going to be talking about the newly crowned CFL champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We'll be talking about them, their history, which is a very interesting history to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I'm gonna touch, be a little, get a little personal on this upcoming episode about my hometown of New Iberia, Louisiana, who's one of the high schools there, won their very first state championship, Louisiana State Championship. And there's a team that's known for basketball, but mm-hmm. they just caught lightning in a bottle and won it in football. Wow. I've always said that my hometown is is basically the a basketball oasis in a football desert. The two high the two public high schools have always been good in basketball, but they they were the first school in our in our town to win a, to go to the Superdome and win a national champ win a state championship in the Superdome, which was exciting. And it's a team that's loaded with kids whose parents I went to school with, and so it's just a, it's a, it's an awesome thing. You know, I'm going to talk about them. And, uh, and, and and I have a top five that's part of every show. The, um, the show in, in next year, I'm going to try to do some different things and try, have some things planned that's going to be very interesting that I find. And, um, and just, just, we're just trying to continue to grow here to Historically Speaking Sports. And you, you, your podcast, I think, is probably the one that's most similar to ours and that you're sort of just all over the map you've done. I mean, you know, I guessed it and we talked about the the 1950 game between the Eagles and the Browns when the Browns first came into the NFL, you've done episode, you did an episode of the Braves a couple months ago when they won the title, the Atlanta Braves, you've done historically black college and universities, HBCUs, you've done fantasy football type things, lists of greatest players in franchise history. Andrew and I have done a lot of that type of thing too. So you've done a lot of different things and, you know, really kind of all over the map, sort of like us. So we, we can always appreciate that. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. And one more thing I want to say that I have coming up also in the 75th, since this is the 75th anniversary of the NBA, I'm going to do something I think is kind of cool, but, but kind of risky. I'm going to invite some of my friends on that are deep basketball fans. And we're going to have a debate on the te- on the players that are on the 75th anniversary list. Who should be on and who shouldn't be and have a debate on that. Me and a couple of my friends. We did a and, very similar episode. So we're, <laughs> yeah, we're right you know, with you and just have, you know, just have a debate on who should be on, who shouldn't be on and stuff like that. So, and so that's going to be, that's going to be coming up. I also have something that you, you guys did. And I did something similar to that in a, in, in a blog a couple, a couple of years ago, which was a list every team's, starting five and reserve and coach mm-hmm. for every NBA team in commemoration of the 75th anniversary. So I'm going to be doing that as well. Well, that all sounds great. If you do the 75, you can't cop out like the NBA did and actually name 76 because we were, <laughs> we were both very annoyed by that. So anyway, Dana Guster, historically speaking sports podcast on the sports history network, check it out. Thanks so much for hopping on to talk about a few guys with us as part of our in memoriam episode. Man, thank you for having me. And this was fun.
Absolutely. Take care. All right. Our next guy, Jim Fossil, born in 1949, passed away on June the 7th. A lifelong football coach, Fossil coached the New York Giants from 1997 to 2003. In 2000, he led the Giants to Super Bowl 35 after a historic 41-0 victory over the Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship game. We obviously have a lot of Fossil experience. So the first Giant coach I really remember is Dan Reeves. Like, Same here. Being the coach, I don't... I. I remember watching, you know, videos and and knowing that Bill Parcells had been the coach and then hearing a little about the brief Ray Hanley era. I remember almost all the Dan Reeves era. Most of that was bad. Jim Fossil, we'll talk about the 2000 season and the, and the, the guarantee. The sad thing for Jim Fossil is that I think for most Giant fans, the three best seasons he had are defined by the way they ended. And they're all ended in embarrassing fashion one way or another. We'll do 2000 last. 97, he was his first year as coach. The Giants had been bad for three years. Dave Brown was the quarterback. He comes in. It's not considered to be a very strong team. The Cowboys are still they're, You know, they're in the decline, but nobody knew it at the time. You know, it's still the Cowboys division. He comes in. They kind of shock football that year. They go 10-5-1. They win the division. Danny Cannell ends up being the quarterback for most of the year. And then in the wild card round, they lose to the Vikings, which, okay, you lose a wild card playoff game. You can live with that. But they blow a lead. They blew like a nine-point lead with like four minutes left. And who was it? Chris Calloway and somebody else were screaming at each other visibly on camera. It was all guys from the defense. It was Callaway was a receiver. It was all guys on the defense. I don't remember who exactly involved with something. Was he really? Okay. So they, they blew that game. The Vikings punted with a couple of minutes left in the game and what almost seemed like a give up. And then the giants choked it away. So they lost in 97, 98 and 99. They're like a mediocre team. They got some quarterback troubles, whatever. We'll skip over 2000 for a minute. We'll come back to that. Oh, one. Obviously, a lot happens in 01 with September 11th and things like that, but they're they're like a mediocre team, okay. 2002, and at one point, we will when we run low on ideas, I will do a whole episode on this because this was my first team that I was like a diehard fan of. I was a junior in high school. Jeremy Shockey got drafted that year. I loved that team. They were mediocre most of the year. They got to six and four. They'd won three straight games to go to six and four. And it seemed like, okay, here we go. Then they lost to the expansion Texans. And then the next week they lost to the Titans in a game that Fossil went for two, which probably wouldn't be that unique now, but at the time it was not a good decision to go for two and they lose. I think that maybe that game oh. should be our next, that O2 Giants Niners game should either be one of the watch alongs that we've talked about doing or something similar to Super Bowl 25. Positive first. Yeah, you're probably right. I, 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 and I'm not joking. I don't know that I can get through that game. If, if I had to list five games, I don't know I could ever get through. That's one of them. The, uh, the, the Sean Jackson game in 2010 is one of them. Something with the Red Sox in, I don't, 
Game four of 04 would be tough to get game through. Seven might be worse just because it's cl- not that it was heartbreaking. It was clear from the start what was going to happen. But then you get nine innings of it happening. Yeah, so, I, so we'll, we'll talk about that. But if we're going to do a watch along, let's make it a positive game first and not one that I might vomit. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, I thought you were when you said let's I thought you were going to say let's not go game by game through the O2. So let, I'll do this quick. No, no, take they're, your time. They're six and six. They're out of it. They win four games in a row, including week 17 against the Eagles. They're hot. They're a hot team. Everybody, you know, Shockey is playing out of his mind. Barber's having a really good year. He's fumbling a lot, but he's having a really good year. Kerry Collins is playing really well. They get the five seed. They get the top wild card. They go out to San Francisco. They're up 38 to they're, they're up 35 to 14. And Shockey drops a touchdown in the end zone. I will defend to the day I die that anyone who says that's why they lost the game is insane because they were they got a field goal. They're up 38-14. They blow the rest of the game. They basically, the next 40 plays all have to go one way for them to lose. Well, that was the thing about that game was that, particularly on defense, but on offense too, every single play almost went for the 49ers. The, the thing I remember about that game the most is that the 49ers would not let anybody but Seahorn, who was a shell of himself, guard Owens, cover Owens. Because I remember even listening to Mike and the Mad Dog the next day, and they were saying, as long as Seahorn was in the game, the Niners were going to figure out a way to have Owens be who was covering him. Yeah, so, and then at the end it gets, there's the whole thing with the field goal and whatever. So they lose that game, and then the next year... They go on an eight-game losing streak. He's fired with a couple of games left. He weirdly never gets a job again. Um, he was a, an assistant in Baltimore for a little while with Brian Billick because they were friends. He interviewed for been. one of the Washington openings. I want to say when they hired Jim Zorn, Fossil was like the other finalist. But he, there were guys who had a lot less success than Jim Fossil who never got ne- never got hired again, or excuse me, who got multiple other opportunities. He coached in the United Football League. He coached the Las Vegas Locomotives from 09 to 12. Yeah, that was one of those things where it was like barely count. That wasn't even on the scale of an XFL or anything like that. There's always been some kind of rumors about him with maybe some womanizing and and that kind of thing and and maybe some issues as to why he never got another job. But Jim Fossil and, you know, does deserve there's three coaches who've ever taken the Giants to a Super Bowl. Bill Parcells, Tom Coughlin, and Jim Fossil. Now, he's third on that list, but he took a... If you look at the 2000 New York Giants, that team getting to a Super Bowl was pretty impressive. And he will be famous in New York forever as the only guy besides Joe Namath who made a guarantee that... I, well, third. Mark Messier. Did it too. The third guy ever who made a guarantee that came true, which was... The Giants have been seven and two. They've lost two games in a row. They lost to a bad Lions team in a game Jason Seahorn could have made a tackle and instead chose to pull his pants up. At the end of the game, in, a, in his post game press conference, he said, Anybody who's in can get in. Anybody who wants out can get out. I'm pushing my chips to the middle of the table. This team is going to the playoffs. At seven and four, that was not a guarantee. And they won their next five games in a row. They ended up with the number one seed in the NFC playoffs. They beat the Eagles in the divisional round in a, an ugly game. 
Giants didn't do much offensively after Ron Dixon returned the opening kick. And then they played what is one of their most impressive games ever in the 2000 NFC Championship game against a very good Vikings team. Dante Culpepper uh, in his second year. Robert Smith was the running back. Randy Moss, Chris Carter. And the Giants dominated them from whistle to whistle. The game was over at halftime. Game was over well before halftime. And honestly, what was most impressive about that game? Yeah, they won it 41 to nothing. Holding the Vikings to zero points with that offense might have even been more impressive than the 41 they scored. Yeah. And if you watch again, the Giants scored a touchdown on their first drive. And that was a team that was winning that year with defense and a little bit with the running game with Barber and Dane, the Thunder and Lightning thing. They score their opening drive. They score a touchdown. Go seven to nothing. Vikings fumble the kickoff return the next drive. Giants recover it two plays later. Touchdown. It's 14 to nothing. The route is on. They destroy. They shut down. I think Randy Moss had like one catch and Chris Carter had none or something along those lines. They shut the Vikings down. They won it. You know, they, they win 41 to nothing. Terry Collins broke all kinds of NFC, NFL championship game records one of their most dominant performances ever. And then they get destroyed by the Ravens. So, you know, I talked about 97 on one end. I talked about 02 at the other end, the 2000 giants, unfortunately, like the 85 bears, or excuse me, like the 85 Patriots are kind of known as the team that got humiliated in the Super Bowl by the Ravens, the giants. Now the Ravens, that was an all time great defense. They were peaking at the right time. The Giants very clearly did not belong on the field with the Ravens that day. So, unfortunately, that colors Jim Fossil's tenure, those three things with the Super Bowl specifically as three playoff appearances all ended embarrassingly. Can we talk about if things would have been different if there hadn't been a nonsense defensive holding call against Keith Hamilton? No, we can't. because (laughs) Like I always say about that. What do you think Ravens fans think about that? Yeah. Kerry Collins was, and they, if you roll it forward, the start of the book about Ernie Corsi bringing in Eli Manning, the book starts that night. And not to throw Kerry Collins under the bus, but Ernie Corsi basically realized, like, this guy's not going to win us a championship. We need a franchise quarterback. And not to say it was all Kerry Collins' fault, but, you know, we're talking about in the context of Jim Fossil. So, you know, again, Guy had some success, got a team to the Super Bowl. There are plenty of really, really successful coaches who've never gotten the team to the Super Bowl. Rex Ryan is going to make a legacy out of the fact that he got two Jet teams the game before Jim Fossil got. And people kind of forget about Jim Fossil because of what happened after, you know, with the Giants, with Tom Coughlin. But um, certainly a sort of, again, an interesting story, both in terms of his time with the Giants, why he never got another head coaching job some of the surroundings of some of the collapses they had. But um, again, a guy who took a New York team to a championship round deserves some acclaim for that. Two quick things in 97, when they hired fossil, they thought about bringing Bill Parcells back and George Young, who was still the general manager, who'd been the general manager throughout the eighties and the Super Bowl years, really, he had always kind of had a, power struggle with Parcells really didn't didn't want him back and he argued against him he, he pushed for Fossil who he called Fazil for some strange reason and in order with his Giants with this strange bifurcated ownership situation that they still have to this day 
both Wellington Mara and Bob Tish had to sign off on a hire. And so it was like Mara wanted Parcells, but Tish really didn't. And George Young was in their ear trying to sell Wellington on Fossil. And then finally, George Young sort of relented, but Tish had already offered the job to Fossil and they didn't want to go back on their word. So very close to Parcells coming back to the Giants in 97. The other thing about the Fossil years, and I don't know if this is necessarily just attributable to him, but I feel like the Giants offense got fun to watch for the first time in my life in the fossil years. That's a good point. (laughs) I mean, Dan Reeves and I was when you're a kid, maybe it's a little different, but especially after Sims retired in quotes, it's retired. Some of those teams, Rodney Hampton, I remember I had friends who loved Rodney Hampton. I always thought Rodney Hampton was just the most boring guy to watch. He was just a between the tackles running back and, you know, Jared Bunch and Charles Way and, you know, the quarterbacks of they, they were a run for one run for two incomplete punt team. That was that was. Yeah. Their- I remember we used to watch the games with our father and Dan Reeves used to have. And it's not like our father is a passionate giant fan by any means. The Dan Reeves used to have a guy who used to hold the cord of the headphones to like, you know, prevent people from tripping over them. And do you remember this? Dad used to always be like, I just let, let, let that guy call the plays. He couldn't do any worse. Do I remember that? I sure do. <laughs> so, but then when, when you bring Fossil in, you know, within a couple of years, you got Kerry Collins and later Shockey and Toomer and, you know, Ike Hilliard, even some of these guys and, Barber was a fun guy to watch as a running back and as an out of the backfield pass catcher. So they got fun to watch offensively for the first time in a long time under fossil. Sure. All right. Why don't we move on to our next guy? And that is another Jim, Jim Mudcat Grant, who passed away on June 11th, was born in 1935 and passed away on June 11th. Grant pitched in the major leagues for 14 seasons with his best season coming in 1965 with the Minnesota twins. That year he finished with a record of 21 and seven and pitched two complete game victories in the world series. He also became the first black pitcher to win 20 games and the first to win a game in the world series. Yeah. So he's a guy again with based on the nickname, you kind of, when I first saw this, I'm like, Oh, I didn't really know a whole lot about Mudcat Grant. So I see the thing and I'm like, Oh, is this a guy who played in like, the forties, like in the yeah, in the early Negro leagues, but um, you know, like you mentioned, the best year was with that Twins team. The interesting, the name. Do you know where he got the name Mudcat from? I thought they kind of just gave it to him because they thought that a black guy should have that nickname. Basically, they started. They just his quote was he said like they just assumed all black guys were from Mississippi. Yeah, I <laughs> so saw that too. Calling him the Mississippi Mudcat. And then that just got shorted, shortened to Mudcat. As an interesting career, he his best years are with those Twins teams in the 60s. He makes a couple of all-star teams, including that year in 65, when he's 21 and 7 with the 65 Twins. That team goes to the World Series, loses the World Series in seven games to the Dodgers uh, when Sandy Koufax outduels now Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Cott in game seven of the world series, two to nothing classic 
mid 60s Dodgers World Series game. Grant with the Dodgers up three two coming back to Minnesota wins game six, uh, five to one. He had also won the first game. He went up against Don Drysdale twice in the series. He beat him game one in 1965 World Series. It's Grant against Drysdale. I think that was one of the years that Koufax didn't pitch because uh, it was the Jewish holiday. So Grant goes up against Drysdale twice, beats him in game one, loses to him in game four. And then in game six, I don't think is it. um, Yeah, it's a different pitcher for the Dodgers. It's Claude Osteen. I don't know why. I don't know why Drysdale doesn't pitch again after game four, but um, that's a story for another day, I guess. But Grant, part of a team that comes really damn close, and it would have been kind of crazy because the Minnesota Twins don't make it back to another World Series for another 20 years, let alone win one. And they come really close in this 65 series. And it's only another legendary pitching performance by Sandy Koufax that prevents that from happening. And there's a story from earlier that I want to touch on, but it's it's important when you talk about how we use the first black pitcher in the American League to win a certain thing. That might seem like splitting hairs now, but for a long time there was even after the leagues integrated, there was things about, okay, a black pitcher or a black quarterback, let alone coaches. It's like that was seen as a bridge too far because they were seen as the thinking man's positions and, you know, the famous Al Campanis thing with the Dodgers. And I must have misspoken here because I said he was the first black pitcher to win a game in the World Series. That must be the first black American League pitcher to win a game in the World Series because Bob Gibson won games in the World Series the year before. Yeah, maybe it was probably was American. I must have gotten that wrong. So just talks about um, an an issue that he had in the 1960 season when he was the subject of an encounter with bullpen coach Ted Wilkes. And this is Grant's version of the September 16th, 1960 incident. I was standing in the bullpen singing along with the national anthem, as I always do. When it got to the part home of the brave and land of the free, I sang something like, this land is not so free, I can't even go to Mississippi. It was something like that, and I sang it in fun. Wilkes heard me and called me a black so-and-so. It says, it's unclear if Wilkes actually said those words or if Grant cleaned it up for the papers. I'm going to guess the latter. I got so mad I couldn't hold myself back. I told him that Texas is worse than Russia. Then I walked straight into the clubhouse and went home. Maybe I should have told Dykes, the manager, what Wilkes said, but in a situation like that, you can't think straight. So it said this happened in September of 1960. White America was not used to hearing black athletes speak out about racial issues. Dykes suspended him for the rest of the season for walking off on the team. And then it said Wilkes admitted to the manager that he made a remark relating to Grant's race. So, and he later becomes kind of a champion of black pitchers. He authors a book called The 15 Black Aces in the early 2000s about all of the black pitchers who have won 20 games, at which point in time there were 15. And there have been a few that have done so since. And they're honored at the White House. Uh, Grant and some of these other living 20 game winners are honored by President Bush in 2007 at the White House. So a a champion for the black pitcher for the rest of his life, even after he retires. 
Also, he's got a really kind of interesting uh, end of his career. He never wins a World Series. He barely misses out on it in 65 with the Twins. And then he's on the Oakland A's in 1970 and gets traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates, finishes out the 70 season. And then in 71, he's on the Pirates, a team led by Clemente and Stargell that's on their way to a World Series and then gets traded back to Oakland. So he doesn't make it into the 71 World Series with the Pirates. He pitches in the playoffs for Oakland in 71, but doesn't make it to the World Series. They lose to Baltimore and then retires right before the A's go on to win three World Series. So a guy who misses out on World Series, if a few things bounce a little differently, it's a guy who could have won two or three World Series instead of never getting to win any. But a unique story, one one that I didn't know a lot. So somebody I thought was worth worth mentioning here. Absolutely, yeah. So not a, this is one of those that falls squarely into the category of like probably would not come up just in normal conversation unless we did an episode about the sixty-five twins at some point. Which, when we do our random, we might. Yeah, the odds that we end up with a pennant winning team. Probably. <laughs> um, we're doing a we're doing an NBA team from the seventies where half the guys were on cocaine. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I really the first one we're gonna we're gonna go like. 67 on or something because I don't want to end up with the 1938s uh, <laughs> the Lions or something like that like we'll 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 gradually expand it but when we do do one of those we're gonna have to we'll make it in like post color television we'll probably <laughs> all right well we've got another sort of a contemporary of Grants and a member of the Black Aces, a black pitcher who won 20 games. Uh, do you want to read about our next guy? Sure. J.R. Richard died on August 4th. He was born in 1950. An imposing right handed pitcher at six foot eight. Richard pitched for the Houston Astros throughout the 1970s, leading the National League in strikeouts in 1978 and 1979. He made his lone all star team in 1980 and started uh, the game for the National League. Sadly, his career was cut short later that year by a stroke. Yeah, I remember reading about this story when I was young about this pitcher, this big, imposing pitcher for the Houston Astros, who in the 1980 season is complaining of headaches and muscle aches. And the team basically dismisses him and says that, you know, he's faking it, they think. And then he ends up playing catch at the ballpark before a game. And he suffers a debilitating stroke, tries to come back, never really actually makes it back, does a little bit in the minor leagues, but never makes it back to the major league. So a sad story of a career cut short. And a lot of people say that he maybe could have been a Hall of Famer if he'd been allowed to finish out his career. Yeah, so 78 and 79, he was, you know, a dominant pitcher. The article I have here says, as this, this is an 80, it says, as the season progressed, Richard began to complain of a dead arm, citing discomfort in his shoulder and forearm. 
His concerns fell on deaf ears. Some in the media even interpreted these complaints as whining or malingering, citing Richard's reputation for moodiness. Others hypothesized that Richard was egotistical and could not handle the pressure of pitching for the Astros, while others suggested he was jealous of Nolan Ryan's $4.5 million contract. During his next start on July 14th against the Braves, Richard was pitching well and even struck out the side in the second inning, had trouble seeing catcher Alan Ashby signs and had difficulty moving his arm, left the game in the fourth inning. After throwing a fastball and feeling his arm go dead, he had numbness in the fingers of his right hand. He was placed on the 21-day disabled list, uh, which would end up being his last major league game. Nine days later, he went to Methodist Hospital in Houston, an angiogram revealed an obstruction in the distal subclavian and axillary arteries of the right arm. Blood pressure in his left arm was normal, but pressure was nearly absent in his right arm. On July 25th, the arteries in his neck were studied, reached a conclusion that all was normal. No surgical treatment was needed. He went to a chiropractor. And then later that day in July 30th, he was warming up when he suffered a major stroke and collapsed in the outfield. So, this was not out of nowhere. He was reporting and complaining about it, and it just was, you know, fell on. Obviously, now with the obviously with the NFL with concussions, but I think the seventies and, and early eighties were a weird era in like sports medicine, whatever. Where like you know the thirties and forties, it was sort of like, well, I'll give them smelling salts or they're drunk or whatever. And then now, what we have, but like I think in the seventies and eighties, they and you know maybe late sixties. They knew to pay a lot of attention to the sports-related things. Like, you know, they knew how to, okay, a guy's hurt his knee. Here's what we want to do. And mm-hmm. they, they really didn't, you know, they were dealing with. Now it's because like, you hear about it all the time where guys, not all the time, but like a lot of times where a guy will go in for a physical at the beginning of the year and they'll notice like an, uh, a heartbeat irregularity or some sort of thing where, guys get caught early for um, like a tumor or something. Yep, absolutely. Because of the, they do look at every aspect of the player, not just, oh, is his, you know, is the knee that had surgery 18 months ago okay? They'll also do full workups on things and say, hey, you might have a, you know, a long-term problem here. And I think that wasn't really, then it was like, oh, he's complaining of soreness in his fingers maybe he's sore from throwing his curveball. You know what I mean? Where they didn't necessarily look at the bigger picture. And it obviously took something horrible in this situation that I don't know enough about that to know. Had they caught that when he first started complaining, would he maybe not have had a stroke? I honestly don't know, but certainly what they did didn't help. No, it did not. A few other just quick things about Richard in his, only all-star appearance to starter. He strikes out Reggie Jackson and Carlton Fisk, both two two Hall of Fame greats of the 70s. And the Dusty Baker, who obviously is now the current day manager of the Astros, played against Baker in the National League for years. And he said that his teammates used to come up with something called JRitis, as he called it, which was when they were about to face J.R. Richard, all of a sudden guys were not feeling well. They needed a rest. Their fingers were sore. Their, their leg was sore. They needed... They needed a break. So an imposing kind of the forerunner, not as good, but, you know, the kind of the forerunner to like a Randy Johnson type, these big, tall, imposing guys on the mound. Should we do one more? Yeah, let's let's do one more for uh, 
for good measure here, which would be Bobby Bowden, born in 1929, passed away on August 28th. Bowden coached the Florida State Seminoles for 24 seasons, winning two national championships and 12 ACC titles, including an undefeated season in 1999. He's the second winningest coach in NCAA Division I history. Started his career as a quarterback for the Alabama Crimson Tide. Joins the team as a freshman, but there's a policy at the time that freshmen cannot get married. (laughs) And he wants to marry his high school sweetheart. So he leaves the team, goes to a smaller college and begins his career, a long career. This is another one where I don't claim any specific expertise, but growing up, it was just, you knew he was one of the all-time greats. He's the, he's the second winningest coach in NCAA Division I football history to Joe Paterno. He's had some wins vacated because of some issues, NCAA violations later in his tenure there, but Another one of these guys who's just a god in Tallahassee in this case. Yeah, um, they were kind of the team. If you asked me when I was growing up through maybe junior high before Miami when I was in high school, which we talked about earlier, if you asked me for just like name the best college football program, I'd be like Florida State. You know, I remember the early 90s. I remember them. It's a very famous game now, and it's one I actually remember watching. We were in Pennsylvania for your Pop Warner game you were playing the next day. Notre Dame-Florida State, one versus two. Notre Dame-Florida State game that uh, Notre Dame won and then lost the next week to Boston College, so Florida State went right back to number one. Charlie Ward was the quarterback. Charlie Ward. They finished in the top five for 14 straight seasons under Bobby Bowden. Won the national championship, like you said, in uh, 93 and 99. 99 was the second year, I want to say, of the BCS championship game. You know, before that, it was still the old model of just you played in bowls. And then whoever the polls said at the end of the year was the national champion. So they won in 99. Him and Paterno, like you said, had gone back and forth. And they've obviously both had some things deducted for very different reasons if you look at what's happened to that program since he's been gone it's one of those where you can kind of say like oh you assumed it was a given that oh of course florida state's going to be good at football but once he left not really i mean when was the last time you heard about florida state football on a national level at this point very true interesting his um both of his teams his championship teams had interesting quarterbacks 93 Heisman Trophy winner Charlie Ward, who would never play a down in the NFL, ends up being a NBA guard most prominently for the Knicks. And then in 99, his quarterback is a junior, Chris Wenke, who is in, in his NFL, late 20s. He's in the NFL two years ago. Chris <laughs> Wenke was around forever. And one other thing I wanted to touch on with Bowden, and if you've seen the movie, it, this actually appears to be fairly accurate. He went to Florida State in 76, and he was there through 2009. Before that, he was at West Virginia. He was the head coach at West Virginia. And when he was a coach at West Virginia, his first year at West Virginia was the year of the Marshall plane crash. The other big school in West Virginia at the time, now they're they're back as D1A now, but they were for a while... 
that was the Marshall team had the plane crash, and in the movie, if you've seen We Are Marshall, the Matthew McConaughey movie, they go and basically ask him, "Hey, they show up at and I'm sure this is a little Hollywood embellished, but they show up at West Virginia and say, like, we want to study your tape of the Veer, and he says, okay." And they, you know, he gives them access to the tapes. That apparently did happen. In memory of the victims of the crash, the Mountaineers put green crosses and the initials MU on their helmets. Bowden allowed Marshall's new head coach, Jack Lengel, and his assistants to access game film and playbooks to acquaint themselves with the Veer offense, blah, blah, blah. Lengel credits Bowden with helping the young thundering herd recover. Bowden reportedly became emotional while viewing the movie We Are Marshall said that he was the original candidate for the Marshall head coaching job for the guy who died in the plane crash, not for Langle, but yeah. The one part the movie doesn't cover and that is very interesting, and obviously this was never going to happen, but so the Marshall team, that plane crash was in 70. I think I saw this story too. That plane crash was in November of 70, and I guess Marshall still technically would have had one more game left. Obviously, the fact that they even played the next year was a miracle, but they obviously weren't going to finish out their season with their whole team having died, basically. But said, so this is from Wikipedia. During Bowden's first year as the head coach at West Virginia, the football team of the state's other top division school, Marshall University, were killed in a plane crash. He asked the NCAA permission to wear Marshall jerseys and play Marshall's final game of the 1970 season against Ohio, but was denied. So it's obviously a great gesture, and it's a you know a tremendously sad story. You can kind of see why it was denied. Yeah, and that'd be a little odd. Also, could you imagine if you were Ohio? Not Ohio <laughs> State. Ohio's like, oh, we're gonna play like Marshall. They're like a team at our level, and suddenly here comes like this top twenty-five. It'd be like, oh well, if instead of playing Navy tomorrow, if all of a sudden Army showed up and the Ravens were playing. <laughs> it'd be like, well, we didn't really sign up for this, <laughs> but you know, I just that that should get added to the story that he was obviously there at that place in time, and certainly seems to have been as supportive as you could expect somebody coaching at a rival school to be. And also, a guy who his sons become coaches, successful ones, Tommy Bowden, Clemson. You had from nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and seven. You had the Clemson, or you had what they called the Bowden. The Bowden Ball, yeah. Here when Clemson played Florida State. And both of his sons and he have had undefeated seasons, Tommy with Clemson and Terry with Auburn. So, mm-hmm. yeah, one of the greats in uh, not, we don't do a lot of college football, uh, especially not modern day college football on this show, but one of the all time greats in college football coaching history that we think is worth commemorating. And I think that's probably a good place to stop. We got through, I think, about 10 or 12 guys and we've got, you know, quite a quite a few more still to get to everybody from uh, Rod Gilbert to Curly Culp to uh, Demarius Thomas, who just tragically died this this past week. So a lot a lot more people to get to. But I think we're off to a good start here. And obviously we'll have uh, have some guests and have had some guests as time goes on. So. Thank you all for joining us. Andrew, do you have anything else to add before we ended? No, I'm, uh, you know, I think we, we obviously went a lot longer than we expected to, but that should be expected at this point. And we got some, uh, some good folks to continue talking about in the, uh, in the next round of these. So absolutely. Well, 
Thank you for joining us for the first part of the 2021 In Memoriam special. Until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.